0: Hello, everybody, this is Tim Green with the Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 130. So glad you could join me. A little bit of a late start. We're trying to get uh, get going with William Logan. Make sure we get video on his call later. He'll be the guest today, and he'll be joining us in just a little bit. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry, We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed—all that good stuff—so that you can help poetry spread around the internet, which is always what we're trying to do. Um, now, as um, we're going to start with a uh, poetry spawn and talk to today's featured poet, let's call up Laura Lauren Jensen Deegan right now. Hey, Lauren! You are live on the air. So glad you could join me.
1: Yeah, glad to be here.
0: Yeah, sorry for the little bit of a slow start, but uh, but but let's uh, talk about this poem a little bit. What uh, the poem was? Uh, Carrot ginger. Do you want to describe um, a little bit about why you wrote it? I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but but let's hear um, what what inspired the poem. Um,
1: I think what has inspired the poem is ongoing over the last two years, Uh-huh. Uh, and specifically with my. The poem is with my husband, and you know I think we've all experienced people coming home from work, and you end up inheriting a lot of things that are going on with them. And um, I never have felt very silenced in it all, and especially with the the coronavirus, you know the 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 trickle down of things that what goes on with him at work comes home to us, goes to our daughter, and then. You know, it ends up going on from there to, you know, in the poem to our swim lessons, but to her school, to her friends, and then into her friends' homes. And uh, for me, it's been terrifying in that regard, the, the trickle-down of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this this poem captured just so powerfully um, something that I think a lot of us have felt. And I, I'm in, on an interesting sort of place in it, because I remember feeling this exact feeling, you know, for the first year all the time, every time I went to the store, And and now I'm almost on the other side of it because I'm a little less. um, I feel like we should. It's we're at the point, sort of just science wise, where we should start moving on. And so Mm -hmm. I started to avoid places where you have to wear masks. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so I've sort of seen. You know, we went to um, Disneyland a few weeks ago, and um, the rules at Disneyland right now is like the kids' Christmas present. And the rules at Disneyland now are you could be outside. without masks and, and so maybe like 40 percent of people did didn't have masks and 60 percent did maybe I guess would be my guess mm-hmm. um it's very we like you know waiting and then you get inside you put on your mask if you're going on inside anywhere and um and at the line at Disneyland there were some people who were sort of looking at that with that sort of angry feeling at it, it us that I was feeling like a year ago at the grocery store it's just this weird thing where sort of we're stepping in two two places at once so it's interesting to capture this
1: yeah it it definitely is and you know as as a family us too this is our new our new reality mm-hmm. um we all pick and choose the places that we want to go that we feel comfortable with um so it's been been interesting i don't have any real judgment against people wearing masks or not wearing masks especially out in the door mm-hmm. outdoors um but it's been difficult in regards to some of the more close things with people close to us and in choices, whether it's, uh, you know, I I have a friend who I love dearly, but for some reason their instinct is to take their mask off when they sneeze (laughs) and they obviously aren't even consciously thinking about, but you know, for them, it's just, you know, I have to sneeze so they can pull their, their mask down. So there's, you know, just little things like that 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 come against day by day, and you know, as I said, it's it's tiring that that you're overthinking that after that. Like, oh, he just sneezed in my face. Like, what does that mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, I just it's been two years. It's so hard to you know imagine that we've been going through this this long. It seems like one long year that never ends or something, which is uh, something you mentioned at the in the note at the end. Yep. Yeah. Um, well anyway, this was just such a powerful poem. I, I love the way that you um you move through. There's this sort of incessant quality that the poem just rolls on with a lot of emotional strength. Do you want to read it?
1: Yeah, I would love to. Okay. I'd love to do that. Carrot Ginger. I will call her Alice because her name is insolent. I will take my frustration out on the cutting board, each layer of shallot peeled, sliced, and separated. I will call her a pathetic excuse for a coworker, because her name is inconsiderate in my husband's face day after day, mask below her chin insisting she is wearing it while breathing on him who will breathe. I love you upon our daughter who will then breathe upon Dylan and Maggie while learning to swim each labored stroke to move forward or at the very least stay afloat five seconds unassisted enough. I will call her a poor example of a human being, not because she declines to be vaccinated, but because she refuses to consider why 211 million people in America do. I will call her nothing because her name means nothing and everything to me, empty pot cans, pennies, as she holds a magnet up to my husband's arm, testing to see if it will stick. It means too much. Too little, too far gone, I will call her R tomorrow. Because her four children call her mom and will grow up being taught there is only one way to tie your shoes. Never knowing different versions, recipes, robes, and this terrifies me. That she takes a family photo in front of a whale carcass washed up on the beach. That one day her only son will ask Santa for a gun and she will wrap it for him. bow and all because this is her right as well. I'm so tired, so lost in our dying seas, a fishing net, this web, closed doors of communication, lack of a greater good, sacrifice, offered hand, why not humanity at all? I will call her Alice because her name is AJ, Kevin, Andrea, Dave, the man not wearing a mask at North Park Market, the neighbor yelling behind the fence, and she will never even read these words know they exist, understand how much she has challenged our family. While she scrolls Facebook for facts and affirmations, I will call her the antithesis to every teaspoon of my existence, not for our conflicting views, but all the nights I spend awake still trying to place myself in her steel toe boots, her church, her apartment, her cubicle, where she coughs, Each particle, each tiny breath, willful complaint against the government. My husband inhaling it all in secondhand, internalizing, bringing it home because he has no choice except listen as I do each night. One shallot at a time, carrot, celery, ginger root, apple bearing all the sorrow turned rage within me. My five year old asking if she can help stir the soup
0: yeah just a powerful poem and, and written straight from the heart I just love love that and thanks so much for writing it and sharing it with us
1: yep thanks for having me Tim
0: yeah my pleasure talk to you soon okay that is uh, that was Lauren Jensen-Deegan with Carrot Ginger um, the poem of the day today and uh, let me see I'm going to do let's see I want to see so William Logan is here but i also want to get to because last week we promised to talk to um, last week's poet sarah sethia we'll see if sarah's online okay so i'm gonna to go to a quick break and check with william logan make sure we get this worked right and then uh then we'll see if we can call sarah sethia and then we'll be right back with some stuff okay so hang on just one second or a few a few seconds i guess There he is. Okay, so here, let's, <laughs> we're all working out. Okay, so uh, whatever, uh, whatever was going on wrong is, is going on better now. So let's do, let's do the in- intro here, uh, and then we'll bring on William Logan, and we'll get the show going like it's supposed to be. So William Logan writes poetry and a little criticism, he says modestly. Uh, his most recent books are Rift of Light and Dickinson's Nerves, Frost Woods. His reviews, um, when there are reviews, appear in New York Times Book Review, The New Criterion, Poetry, Hudson Review, Hopkins Review, and other journals. He teaches poetry workshops, an occasional graduate course in the craft of poetry. Logan received the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, the Aiken Taylor Award in Modern American Poetry, the Stage D. Blackford Prize for Nonfiction, the inaugural Gerald Randall Award in Poetry Criticism, and the Corrington... Medal for Literary Excellence, and the Alan Tate Prize. This is an award-winning poet we've got here. And here he is with us right now, William Logan. And um, there you go. Am I here? Yeah, you are. Hello. Great to see you, William.
2: Good to see you, Tim.
0: Yeah, sorry for the technical issues, but we got it working all right. So how are you doing I'm sure today?
2: they were all my fault.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's all right. It's tough to... It, the, the thing is, Skype used to be the most popular one, and now Zoom has taken over, and nobody likes Skype anymore, but, uh, but it works for our purposes, so we have to keep using it. I hear you. Um, do you want to start out by um, reading a poem?
2: Sure, why not? Private Road. Dusty, sun-stroked, the attic rose in sepia haze, a photograph circa 1880, broad floorboards laid down before the Civil War, square nailed, lined up in lockstep. The old colonial, ours for two decades, reached the low point of that once vast estate. The winding drive half gone to grass, two antique oaks slanted toward firewood, and in the back quarter shrubby remains that forgot to be formal gardens. The basement walls, old boulders lane to foundation, seethed the cheerful vegetable air Reduced to two acres The mansion had been Surrounded by houses Generations younger Like an old roué by children Whose names he cannot remember The massive horse chestnut Trailed its skirts on barren ground Concealing a bower Of greenery within From the demoloon windows In the attic on a clear day You could see Connecticut
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful poem From the current issue of Rattle Um, Thank you Yeah, yeah. I I always love your work. It's so, so condensed and tightly packed. And it's the kind of poetry, really, I guess what I could say about your is, is your work always, you know, makes me appreciate poetry and want to take it more seriously than I do. Because as a friend (laughs) of mine said, um, you're, you're one of the last people on earth who takes poetry seriously. That's the feeling of reading your both your poems and your, your criticism is that you, you take it is something that really has value and is worth talking about and is worth doing seriously, which seems to be in the the minority uh, these days.
2: Well, I don't I don't know about that. I'm sure that every poet thinks not only that he or she's a genius, but he or she is taking poetry very seriously. We may have a different definition of what serious means <laughs> in that sense. Um, so uh, I don't know. Do you want to? Let's see. So if you um.
0: Try to uh, click your camera on again. So turn.
2: Oh, sorry, it's gone off again. Yeah, turn that.
0: Yeah, turn that uh, off and then on. And see if that'll work. There we go. You see me now? Yep. Here you come. Okay, perfect. Yep. I, I knew it would come back. Okay. So. Uh, I think we go to Zoom next time. right. <laughs> well, the problem with Zoom is that they don't let you export the video, so, ah, well, so I, no can't, I can't no. mix it with the with the screen views. Um, but. Yeah. So, so let's, uh, let's talk. About, I'm always curious about how a poet got into poetry and where you, um, you know, where that came from. Like, do you remember when, uh, you know, the first time you sort of fell in love with, with poems and, and where you were and, and how you came to become a poet?
2: Well, uh, it's vague. Uh, the, the house I was describing is in Huntington, Long Island. My father bought it in 1965 when he moved to New York to take up a job as general manager of a boating parts firm. His boss was Walter Kissinger, Henry's big brother. Oh, wow. Uh, I think Walter died just about six months ago, 94. Uh, w- lovely guy, and my they live within half a mile of us, so my parents sell them quite a lot and stayed in touch with them after my dad got different jobs. But this house was a originally an 1850s farmhouse that probably had 1,000 acres, 500 acres, and over the years they were sold off, and the house was eventually bought by a man who was president of Republic Aircraft, which was on Long Island, who committed suicide in the house, we were told. Uh no bloodstains remained at that point. Oh wow. And so they they did what they could by way of renovation. They were great wallpaper artists, my parents. But when my dad uh retired, he uh He decided to downsize so they could fund a real estate operation they were running. Not very successfully, I'll add. And so we moved to, they moved to a smaller house. I was gone by then. But while we were in that house, that big old former mansion, I would call it, on Private Road, which was the name of the road, uh, I was having a furious argument with my parents one evening. God knows what about what, some stupid adolescent thing. And in a fury, I went upstairs and started writing a poem, very angry. But I liked the feeling of it It seemed to get everything I needed to say down on the page. And so uh, through the rest of high school, I must have been a junior then. Uh, through the rest of high school and the college, I wrote a lot of really terrible poems, much worse than my freshman produce here in Florida. Uh, and I didn't know exactly how to go about it. I suppose I had some idea that you waited for the muse and the muse tapped your shoulder and then it was hunky dory. But after four or five workshops with various people, some of them talented and some of them nice folks, I had not learned a damn thing. (laughs) I really had not. And that's no doubt more my fault than theirs. But my senior year, I had two workshops, one nominally in fiction, though I was allowed to write poetry. And the other in poetry, the poet was Richard Howard, who probably along with Don Justice has, has trained, taught, more american poets of my generation than anybody else those two were in big programs for a long time and richard set his assignments Mm -hmm. and the first week when i started doing it i thought shit i don't know anything about writing poetry this is about solving problems well i was an old science jock in high school i know how to solve problems i love math didn't go on with either but i felt i knew how to solve problems and he was delighted with the first piece i wrote for him and almost took it for american review which was a uh, uh, the the uh the successor to new american review and he was the poetry editor didn't in the end come out there i had another poem later but he was wonderful he just jabbered on for two hours every week uh wonderful talker wonderful monologuist did not care a whit for what we had to say almost never asked us a question it was a monologue but he read us a lot of poets bishop lowell merwin and sometimes he'd discourse at length about these folks. He'd written a book uh, that was originally supposed to be called 50 Poets 50, but was 50 essays on American poets of, that, of, that, of his and the, and the generation just after. So I learned a lot from Richard and from the other guy who was crazy in many ways and lovable in all ways. Uh, he did fiction and he would come in each week and he would wander in a few minutes late, sit down, give a sigh, put nothing in front of him except cigarettes and maybe the book, which he never cracked. Maybe it was Faulkner one week, Hemingway the next, Fitzgerald, all the biggies. And he started talking about the book. Well, it was a two-hour two seminar. We had a one-hour monologue. Usually it was 50 minutes. And then he'd say, well, that's it for today. And he'd read Wander off again. <laughs> uh, that was David Milch, who later uh, created NYPD Blue and Deadwood. He oh, became okay. a fabulously wealthy scriptwriter, and then, I'm i am sad to say, lost most or all of it to gambling Hmm. he was a bad gambler but those two guys set the tone and the uh the mark for what it was like to be a writer and i learned a hell of a lot from both of them they were both wonderful extraordinarily intelligent extraordinarily knowledgeable people and the uh the kicker was david was 24 or 25 at the time which was really infuriating because he was about three (laughs) years older than me (laughs) holy shit i've got i've got a lot to catch up i went to iowa Ah, uh, probably initially at David's suggestion. I don't remember, and I didn't get in the first time. Hmm. And then he said, "Well, you try it again." And he offered me a, a, a position as his assistant, which was going to—he was getting nothing for these things he was doing at Yale. Those guys teaching those seminars were adjuncts, especially. I mean, they were considered real, real good—the real deal—but they weren't making a lot of money. And I turned it down, probably uh, to my—well, certainly to my everlasting regret. But after another year, I did get in. And Mm -hmm. so I went out to Iowa and learned a few more things there, especially from Donald Justice, who was my best prof there. I mean, it's a story of having people who could teach you and who gave you decent feedback. And what I tell my students Mm -hmm. in the MFA program here is if you want to continue to be a poet, you basically have to do two things, apart from writing poetry, that's a given. You've got to submit to magazines to make yourself part of a world And you've got to have one or two people who can really read your stuff Mm -hmm. and respond to it in an intelligent way and vice versa. So uh, this is hard. Both of those things are hard for students. The the, the application it requires over and above writing is often too much. And my estimate is about 70 percent of students who get MFAs are not writing seriously within five years. There's Mm a huge drop off. And it's sad because many of the people are extremely talented. Yeah,
0: that's the thing that I worry about a lot as an editor. I see a lot of people come through really young and amazingly talented. And then a lot of people seem to, I'm not sure what it is that they drop out from it. If they don't care, yeah. you know, they don't have the dedication to it. If they're, you know, turned off by the literary sort of world, the scene that we have, and or they feel like maybe they're not getting the success that they should. I'm not sure, but I see a lot of people who... Um, I think, oh, this person, you know, now that I've been doing this for 17 years, I, I've seen a lot of people over those years, uh, you know, who, who I think, oh, this is going to be the next big pers- big poet, and then they disappear. Um, And that's happened, you know, pretty, fairly often. Um, why do you think that is?
2: I don't think there's one explanation. If there is, I hope I would have discovered it at this point and been able to give them the three triggers for continuing to write. Life gets in the way,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, marriage, kids, jobs, these are all tough on a writer. And there isn't a way to support yourself unless you have a job, unless you have somebody supporting you. And, and both of those are possible, but they always get in the way. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a wonderfully talented undergraduate who won with two of her undergrad poems a, a, a prize from poetry and pretty much stopped writing then. And now in her 40s, she's come back to the stuff she was doing then and some new stuff she's written. since. So, I think it's terrific. And I hope that she's going to submit this manuscript to various places. But uh, I get it. The, the world is hard. Mm-hmm. The, um, the writer's world is hard. You, you hear all these stories. And, of course, they believe everything they hear and think everything is fixed. Or you've got to know everybody. But that's not true. My sweetheart, Deborah Gregor really liked poetry because she didn't have to meet anybody. She <laughs> could just send the manuscripts out, get them back. And that was the way it worked. She didn't have to give readings. She didn't have to go off and meet people, which uh, she doesn't particularly enjoy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you remember like back
0: in that day, um, you know, in your twenties, um, what was it about poetry itself that drew you to it? Like, what was it that, that made you, you know, that, that lit your mind up and made you want to become a poet and pursue it seriously?
2: I think it's that feeling you get when you write a poem. It's it's a minor act of creation, but one that fills you with charm and joy for at least 30 seconds or two minutes before you start to see the flaws in it. Or In my case, I don't look at it until another day, and then I can be a little cooler, and then it goes through many drafts, and then I show it to Deborah, and she scribbles on it. So it's a long time before you ever recapture that feeling. So you just write another poem <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't been brutalized by the world
0: <laughs> that is true. So, so it's like one, you know, you need one that hasn't been brutalized yet. So you keep writing a new one every day. That's <laughs> like Groundhog Day or something. Um, let, let's hear another poem. Um, do you want to start for, with a Rift of Light poems or, or something sure. else?
2: Let me point it up here. I'll give you a, a short one. Uh, called Thoreau. I'm not I'm not against short poems. I, I don't particularly like books that are only short poems, but I do like a poet who does, Heaney does this, a lot of longer poems, and then he'll throw in a short one, five or ten lines. Thoreau, that oily bale of rags lost on the silent architectures of the wood, or so it seemed as falls, chancels darkened, and rough earth gave and forgave. Forgave, I mean the intrusion. I don't know what it means, but I was thinking of Thoreau and I was thinking of his position out there in the woods. And the uh, uh, fairly recent discovery that the um, remains of a shack that an African-American woman had out there uh, still, I mean, you can find the, the ruins. And I think that they're going to memorialize it. I hope they are. It's it's a wonderful moment when Thoreau separates him from the world, but not really. He goes back. Mom will cook him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh-huh. he's 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 supported in various ways. It, that was his one. It was his private art colony. And I I like the idea of Thoreau out there wrestling with his great thoughts <laughs> and uh, and succeeding because mostly people are wrestling with great thoughts and, and telling you they're geniuses and they're not succeeding
0: um say a little bit more about that um you know you said i don't know what it means and um and and i love the way i mean the thing that's that's really stimulating for me is the way poetry walks that line between what i know and i what i don't know and what i know i know but what i don't know i know kind of a rumsfeldian thing and, uh, and, 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 so there's a way that like part of you knows things and part of you doesn't, and it sort of is a bridge between the different sections of your person or something. Um, so, so how much like meaning do you have to know to, to like, where's the, how do you find the sweet spot for meaning in a poem?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I guess what, what strikes me about this poem is that I've forgotten exactly whether the oily bale of rags was real or it was something that looked like an oily bale of rags in the woods. So... <laughs> I've lost that that connection, but the silent architecture is the wood fairly obvious metaphor, I mean not difficult to parse uh, but then the dash or so it seemed as if there are other things going on there, and uh, the, the falls chancel, so the way the woods look in the fall, I mean that goes back to Shakespeare's wonderful line uh. And rough earth gave and forgave. Well, that's, you know, that brings us to a central aspect of Thoreau's philosophy, that, that the earth itself is what we must remain in touch with. He's the early ecologist in American literature, whether he knew it or not. So, And then forgave, I mean, the intrusion. And that's, that's what one always feels, trespassing on, not hallowed ground, but ground that's been occupied and, and owned, in a certain sense, metaphorically, by someone like Thoreau.
0: Um, Well, since I'm a short, let's hear another one. Let's do the the next.
2: All right, we'll do another short one. Um, This is also a fall poem, I think, called Leaf Color, also from Rift of Light. A steely torn silver rusted along the edges, the faint acidic yellow like the backwash of a polluted pond, earth spatter and gold spot in blotchy shallows, graze graze the purpling of drenched slate, and a pooling crimson with the false bonhomie of the maraschino cherry, all that a necessary life turning to tinder. The shadows were fragile fertile, beyond the shocks of grimy hay in a spent field. The India ink closeted blacks, why choose the useful darks? Not that anything lay hidden there, was it only the spilled over abandoned life and from the wastage the broken buds. So either a, a, either a early fall or a late spring poem when there's all that litter on the ground. And I think in composing that poem, what I wanted to try to do was have an analysis, a metaphorical analysis of color, and then find some way to wrap it up. And fall was, if, if it was fall, I think it was fall. Uh, I had all that around me. Even in Florida where we don't have a proper fall.
0: Well you have iguanas falling from the trees. That's a uh, That's, that's I,
2: further south. We is, don't have those iguanas. Oh no We have geckos and anoles, but uh not not the uh, the terrifying guys. So one of the things
0: you're known for is saying um talking about the complexity of poetry. And and I think you've said that that you know modern poetry isn't isn't complex enough for me. It's it's not that my poems are difficult, but I, I remember exactly what you said, but nor do I. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, there's something about how um you know modern poetry isn't as complex you know if if your poems feel difficult, then it's because modern poetry isn't difficult enough or, or something like that um yeah,
2: that sounds probable uh, it sounds more arrogant the way you say. <laughs>
0: So but, I, but can you I, talk I, about I, that though the the you know because well, your your work does have a lot of illusions and and I think one of the things that might turn people off from poetry is they feel like there 's a code that they don 't understand mm-hmm. and so and when I read poems, I can sense that there 's illusions that i 'm not getting. And I can either, I feel like I love that because I can look it up or I can enjoy the poem without it anyway. But I think there's a sense that people feel like they're, you know, that there's some secret password that they're not given and that turns people <laughs> off sometimes. So, so what do you think? What do you think about that?
2: Well, <laughs> let me attack that in two ways. Okay. Uh, Randall Jarrell somewhere talks about being on a cruise, I think, and a man finding out that Jarrell was a poet asking him, well, well, which of the modern poets should I start with? Where can I start? And Jarrell says, well, Robert Frost. I mean, of course, Frost is very easy to read. It's mostly narrative. He doesn't use a lot of metaphors. There's, you can you can go for weeks trying to find a metaphor in Frost, but he uses symbols. And the guy looked at him and shook it, look looked at jerrell looked at and shook his head and said, no, I've tried that. It's much too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, you can't even tell somebody, this would be back in the 40s, on poor old Robert Frost, well, that's going to be a tough one. My, my, my complaint, taking this from another angle, my complaint is that a lot of poets don't use many or any of the possibilities that poetry has granted us for thousands of years. Uh, the metaphors are lacking or trivial. Uh, the The lines have no real identity. They're just prose chopped up in one way or another. They're not stupidly chopped up mostly, but they're chopped up and you don't have a sense that you ought to get at any time after Milton that enjambment is your friend mm-hmm. and you can make a poem speed along if you enjam it in the right way and just chopping it where you think uh, there might be a place to break it or or worse. In fact, I had a lovely student, talented student who felt that every line should be about the same number of M's or N's. You know, it just he's like a typographer and had to fit. Huh. And if, if he changed the word, we had to put something else in there. This is uh, I can understand the wish. It's a, it's it's a it's a neatness obsession, but poetry doesn't have to be either of those things, and it doesn't have to be as prosy and prosaic as most of what I see coming over the transom for review. I just I don't touch those things. It's just not it's just not interesting enough for me to be provoked, and I have to be provoked either for or against mm-hmm. to some degree, even if it's going to be a mixed review. I have to feel that I want to write about it, not that it's just there and needs to be reviewed. I don't think poetry will change very much for the very reason you say. People feel that poetry is hard. Well, probably poetry has always been hard. I remember in high school and we could cruise through Thomas Hardy, uh the the novelist, not the poet. We weren't given Thomas Hardy's poems, which are terrific. But the guy would come to poetry and uh, stumble around and talk a little bit around it. It was like that terrible, I think it was Frederick Wiseman at that wonderful documentary, High School, which includes a, a young English professor trying to uh, parse the lyrics of, I think, Sound of Silence. <laughs> <laughs> She's terrible at it. <laughs> uh, as high school teachers sometimes are. I'm sure there were better ones than I had. I, I I was fortunate with one in the 10th grade and one in the 8th grade, but otherwise, they were time-serving and they weren't particularly good at what their jobs were. I. It was a long time before I got somebody like Richard Howard or David Milch who just talked in a way that sparked all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And one has to be grateful for folks like that. So you can't put that in a breath mint (laughs) (laughs) and hope to change people. You just have to get lucky as many of their students were Mm -hmm. and Don Justice's as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem. I want to keep moving with poems and see we have a good number in there.
2: You're tired of my clothes already. I get it. I get it. Uh, Here's another Long Island poem. i I was only on Long Island for three years and then visits to my folks after that, so I'm not an expert uh, at all. But we we did live near Long Island Sound and Huntington Harbor, and so I did spend some time on the beach there, not as much as I spent when I was a child in Westport Point, which is a fishing village in Massachusetts. But this is Long Island summer 1968. Beneath that chalk blue sky with iron stirred through it, the whitewashed windows burned in faint phosphorescence. That long-forgotten summer amid the ghostly Long Island yachts, we entered the waters on that narrow neck beneath a moon of cracked porcelain. Our blank lives had almost begun. War rose behind the shuttered summer, that summer. We whispered beneath low masses of anchored boats, stirring through that coldness, the phosphor radiant along bodies naked in their nakedness. There in the iced waters, our glowing outlines almost made us whole. The war, of course, the Vietnam War, this would be late sixties, sixty-eight. In fact, as I say,
0: so in that poem, it's interesting to read that after you talk about um, enjambment in the in the you know the importance of a line and having its own weight and having you know be being done for reasons and you can feel it in that poem um, as you read um, you know just highlighting that. Can you explain a little bit about the process of writing a poem and and how you come to the shape <laughs> in the in the uh, the form of it i wish
2: i could (laughs) (laughs) and i'm the guy who should know but i I, and i don't want to be mystifying about it i don't i don't believe in any mystical aspect of creating poetry or reading poetry uh i'm pretty hard-nosed but uh i have to have some kind of mood that creates that wish to write and that ability to write i have to be fairly clear in the head i can't be uh i can't have a headache for example uh Unfortunately, I'm not much prone to headaches, but I have to have that that sense that I wanna put some language down on the paper. And if I don't have a notion of what I want, I page through books that I like that make me wanna write poetry. What I tell my students straight off is that the point of having workshops where everybody does the same assignment is that it creates jealousy. The next week, two weeks later, they're seeing these poems and they're thinking, well, so-and-so has a great title, and so-and-so is a great last line, and so-and-so is good at metaphors, and you have no explanation for that except that they're better than you are, <laughs> which makes you jealous. And then I say that really most of us wanted to be writers because we read something sometime in our teens that just blew our heads off, and we thought, I want to do that. And that's, that's another word for jealousy. I want to do that. Hmm. So I like Richard Howard's method of having a Simon's are very different from his, but it taught me a lot about writing, and I hope. It creates good poems for my students. Many of them enter their theses, and many of them end up being published in books and magazines. So it works in some sense. It focuses them. You give them a lot of problems, and they try to solve them, and then they see the way other people solve the same things. So nobody goes in with an advantage.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way, is that through the frame of jealousy. But but I can definitely see how that works. We have a prompt at the end of every episode, I and mean, we we open lines for the prompt poems. And uh, you know, when someone <laughs> writes a good one, it definitely makes me want to uh, you know write something better next week.
2: <laughs> and, and you cocked it. You, that's you cocked it into a hat, and you knocked it into a cocktail. <laughs> Whatever, whatever the thing used to be, before mm. I got a hold of it. <laughs>
0: so, um, so about the criticism, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, the, I think Slate called you the most hated man in poetry.
2: And no, I think that was Hudson Review. I think it, Review? it was Robert McDowell. It was <laughs> a long time ago. You could be right. I'm not going to put any money um, on it.
0: Yeah. Well, all I did was read the, uh, you know, your poets, you know, foundation bio. I think it was in there, but, um, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> But uh, someone else has told me that, like, if um, someone said, if William Logan ever writes a review of your book, don't read it, <laughs> which is another way of kind of putting the same thing. But um, but but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it would be like, like it feels like a sign of respect to go back to what we were talking about earlier, to take to take someone's books that seriously. Um, you wouldn't do it if you didn't have if you didn't think it was worth taking seriously. You know what I mean? And so.
2: It, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh I I think I know where you're going. Uh when I first started writing book reviews, I was still at Iowa. Some guy was I think the, the local paper gave him the critics position. So he was he was getting workshop people to write reviews and I I wrote a couple for him. And then I uh and and that was pretty much my retirement from being a rock critic, which I'd been for four or five years where I was not very good. I've seen the reviews again and now I I I didn't know enough. Uh, there are much better rock critics than I was, uh, but I did like the act of reviewing, and so I moved to uh, reviewing those those two books uh, in grad school. And then, when uh, my sweetheart Deborah uh, got a fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, we moved there, and I, I sent queries out to a lot of papers and magazines saying, "You know, would you like me to review?" and showed these two reviews I'd done, and. The only one to respond was the Chicago Tribune. So so shortly I was doing I was at the beginning of two years reviewing at first fiction and then poetry for the Chicago Tribune. And they were awfully nice to me. And I had about a review a month and that kept us in donuts. And and so that was uh that was the start of reviewing. And gradually I started reviewing for other places. And somebody said to me in the early eighties that uh Don Bruckner, who was the uh who was the literary uh, editor for the new york times book review liked my thing so i wrote don a note i don't, didn't know him and he said yeah i'd like you to review and so i started there and i i review about once a year they don't do a lot of poetry reviews anymore uh they do these these shorties at the rear of the magazine but boy i bet they don't do more than about six or seven reviews during the year and the criterion i started with them in about 95 and after they published a an essay or two of mine, I said, I want to pitch you about the Poetry Chronicle. We'll name it, after, we'll name it verse chronicle after Randall Jarrell's first chronicle. And they said, well, yeah, let's try it. And so that's, I think it's the 25th or 26th year now mm-hmm. of doing those things. Uh, but I, I like doing them. I, it puts me in touch with a lot of poets I probably would not have read seriously if I didn't have to read it. Mm-hmm. And that is the best thing about criticism. You read a lot of books. Some of them you don't review. Some of them you do. But at least you know what they're about. And I don't think I'd read really a fraction of that if I was just writing. And I know a lot of poets after a certain age, you know, they're just not in touch with what's being done. Mm -hmm. They just, I asked W.D. Snodgrass this at uh, the art colony Yaddo back in the 70s. I said, well, whom do you read? He says, oh, I don't read people. I don't want to be influenced. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) He was a very sweet guy. Uh, And then I reviewed him and then we never talked again. (laughs) Oh, well.
0: How, where do you get the books from? I mean, I don't want to, um, you know, have people be sending you books, you know, to your house or I'm, something. I'm but glad you, to look, are you glad to look at any yeah.
2: book that people send me, but I don't review a lot of small press stuff, and I don't mm-hmm. review uh, chapbooks. It's just, it's just impossible at that point. There are so many books that come out, uh, but most of the books are sent to me by the publishers. I'm on the poetry reviewers list, and though that's squirrely, mm-hmm. you'll find that somehow you've dropped off for no particular reason, or that. They forgot to send you stuff so you've got to keep tabs but yeah. no they all come here and then they often go to the friends of the, local friends of the library when i <laughs> I, mean, I only have so much shelf space so uh, i keep I keep what I will need
0: yeah for sure we we you know I get so many books um when we we used to do reviews and it was actually um you know I think we published almost a thousand reviews online um and and I stopped it because i they felt like long blurbs after a while and and I just couldn't, you know, and then we'd have some people who were reviewing seriously like that and the, and the poet would be so mad because they'd have, (laughs) you know, like 10 reviews in a row would just be like long blurbs of somebody praising their book, which would turn out to be like a a co-student or a friend or a teacher or something. And then um, the 10th one would be someone trying to be a William Logan and then the contrast would make it seem like this one book were crapping all over and i just couldn't find a way to make it work i mean yeah. you know i mean people weren't writing very seriously or they were blurbing friends or it was just it's just such a mess and i tried you know we tried shuffling around for a while doing different things we've tried like really short reviews and I just I just threw in the towel I'm like well you know a better way to promote a book is to share a poem (laughs) so we'll just publish a poem online every day that's different and that'll do better for promoting poetry than a review ever does and and with our chapbooks that's one of the reasons why we don't have blurbs and on the back I just can't stand the whole business of just um you know saying how much how great everything is over and over again until it means nothing which uh is kind of the state of affairs
2: I, I long ago decided that I would not give blurbs, and because I was not going to give blurbs, I couldn't take blurbs. And the only exceptions I made for that was uh, my wonderful friend who died uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, George Steiner, who who was my chess partner for twenty five years. I wrote a piece in Salma Gundy last year about him, about our chess. Uh, we, we were not <laughs> we're not going to scare Magnus Carlsen anytime soon, but we had hopes, and. George asked if he could give a review for one of my books of criticism, I mean, sorry, give a blurb for one of my books of criticism, so I had to say yes, he's a good friend. But other than that, uh, gosh, I think the only blurbs on any book of mine, other th- rather than clips from reviews, which I'm happy to use, but the only blurbs were in a book uh, that the uh, University of Minnesota Press published, and they didn't ask me about blurbs, mm-hmm. they just went off and got them, and I was very upset with them because of this rule I had, so... <laughs> They said in the second printing, they'd take them off, but there was never a second printing. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a, uh, a somewhat failed attempt to bring back the reputation of a late 19th century poet who was not very good at anything except this one long poem that he, that he wrote. His name is uh, John Townsend Trowbridge, and I think it's a wonderful poem, mm-hmm. but, uh, and it probably is, maybe, but, <laughs> but it, it, it didn't go into a second printing. Most poetry books don't.
0: Yeah, yeah, very few. I don't know what the percentage is, but less than one percent, I'm sure. Um, so so the most recent review of yours I read was the one in the New Criterion where you hmm. touched the hot button of um, Amanda Gorman. Um, oh yeah, that yeah. Which, which brings. I, I'm just curious if if you had a lot of pushback for that because that's a different kind yeah. of um thing. You know, it's one thing for for you know going after poetry, but then you're in the political realm, um, and we we live in this hyper partisan world where everything is suddenly political. Um, did, did you get any extra, like, different kind of pushback for that? Or was it? I don't
2: generally get pushback. And I think that's probably because I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> if I were on Twitter, I'd get plenty of pushback. So why go on Twitter? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just, it's a waste of time for me. Uh, I did a, I did a uh, something, some kind of online thing for poetry 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And they said, well, we'd like you to continue this. And I said, this is way too much work every day turning out three or 400 words and then uh, you're paying me minimal rates. I can't, I can't do it for that. It's too disruptive. And it's the same thing with Twitter. You're, it's, it's just like having this, this, what, what were those, what were those little devices they had in Japan? You had to take care of them, pets or babies oh, or something. Neo and,
0: nano pets or whatever. Yeah.
2: And, and if you didn't, they died. <laughs> yeah. so that's the way Twitter is. You feel like if you get off for a minute, well, something exciting will happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, most people are pretty good about it. Either they, they're if they're mad at me, fine. We never meet. Uh, Franz Wright was one of the few exceptions uh, <laughs> who made his disappointment known repeatedly over the years. Yeah, he uh, threatened
0: to... Didn't he threaten to fight you or something?
2: Yeah, he, he wrote a letter to the New Critic. <laughs> which, look, A, that's a sucker move. Because if you're writing to a magazine that allows the critic to respond, you're dead. And... It doesn't matter whether you're right or not mm-hmm. so he wrote and he said among other things that uh he uh would like uh, something to the effect that he would like to meet me so he could give me the beating i so richly deserve and <laughs> i wrote him back said i'd be delighted to uh give him my itinerary so he could ac- accomplish this or attempt to accomplish this but as far as fighting was concerned i could offer him only pies at 10 paces france <laughs> had some talent but boy he was a clown in his relations to other people he couldn't stand criticism and I don't think it could he could stand friends either. I mean, he was really mean to people. Mm-hmm. He's gone, and we don't need to think about that anymore. But uh uh he was a sad case. But I've had people who were upset with the reviews, and and in fact, I gave a very nice review recently to a to a senior poet uh whom I've been somewhat harsh with at times. And this was read to the poet. I won't even say the gender, but read to the poet by a friend of, of a friend, and he got to the end of it and 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 he or she said, "Well, what else? There must be some bad stuff." And the guy said, "No, no, he really liked that." <laughs> 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 so you can't win for losing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if um, I, I'm sure that the, the the answer is that you don't don't doesn't matter. But I, I'm sure the negative views get a lot more attention than the positive ones too. Is there any kind of impulse to to be? you know, to, to please your audience that loves the, the, the metaphors he uses, you rip on people.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't do it for that reason. I do it just because that's the way I write. And if I do a long essay on some much more important topic than the poetry of the day, then it's really the same writing. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I'm trying to be funny, but sometimes maybe by accident I stumble over a joke or two. (laughs) Uh, the, the problem really is we're just not used to that kind of criticism. Jarrell felt the same pushback and stopped mm-hmm. writing that sort of thing after five or six years. He claimed that he, he well, he felt, he told people that he, thought, he felt he'd been denied a Pulitzer because of it. And that may be the case. And certainly Jarrell probably deserved a Pulitzer for one of those early books. But what are you going to do? If, if you're going to be the critic, you take the King's shilling, mm-hmm. you do what that demands, you don't whine about it. If, people, if you don't get something, you don't say, well, that was because of the criticism. Maybe it was, maybe it Who cares?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the thing is, poetry is kind of like, uh, like a small town. Like, I lived in Los Angeles for a few years. Then I moved up to this small town in the mountains. And, man, the difference in how kind people are to each other is just out of control. <laughs> I mean, nobody says a bad word about anybody almost because you know you're going to see the same people in line at the post office every day for as long as you live here. And so it has this kind of, and poetry being a small world, has the same kind of feel. Like you just, you know, there's only so many people here and we don't want don't to step on any toes because there's only so many toes to step on. We're going to be seeing them everywhere
2: we go. Well, it's that and the people never forget a bad review ever. Uh, Lucy Brock Breuder, who who was not a friend, I met her once, I think. Uh, uh, I, I wrote a fairly grumpy review about her first book. And when she admitted students, including many of mine, to Columbia, she would meet all the incoming students and then read them that review. And I'm not sure whether it was to inure them to reviews in the future, but she didn't seem to mind that it had been slightly humorous, perhaps at her expense. Uh, somebody like that is is uh, the Dickman twins have both been very nice about rather grumpy reviews. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's to make make me feel that oh well now i feel guilty i'm going to review the books better the next time because of course i'm not i'm going to review whatever i see Mm -hmm. and uh, there are a lot of poets who in their 20s were pretty rough reviewers and many of those in their 30s backed off from it and i get it Uh, i was told after the first big review i did which was in poetry of four or five six books james tate i forget who else uh that i shouldn't do that i said what do you mean i shouldn't do that i said well that's it's it's bad for poetry mm-hmm. the guys was an editor and i said well i'm i'm sorry but that's the way i'm right now that's what i I think it's right to do it that way uh i don't think the cost to me have been anything worth whining about or mm-hmm. crying about it's ridiculous if, if somebody once told me well you would have gotten this award actually i was told that one <laughs> it was a fairly minor award but it was you know a couple thousand dollars or something i said yeah, you were you were going to win that award, and then your review of so and so came out the day before the meeting, <laughs> no, and, and they wouldn't vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Well. Uh, so it, it happens, but that's not the reason we're in poetry to make mm-hmm. people feel only good. The worst, po- the worst, the worst uh, adjective in poetry is relatable. Mm-hmm. I am not looking for something relatable, and I, I feel sorry that students sometimes feel that they have to read poets who share their characteristics, whether it's gender or race or or sexuality. And it's not that they can't learn anything from people who do have those things, but I have the feeling that a lot of students consciously are seeking that as if, as if that will hold the key to their own poetry. Mm-hmm. I was taught by a lot of guys and uh, one or two women very different from me. And so I learned from all of them. I never felt that I had to find another white guy my age to tell me what it was about. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I I read poetry to f- to see different perspectives and to see no. things that I don't see. I mean, that's really the point of poetry for me is to have my mind opened up by stepping in someone's shoes or in their body or in their breath or whatever poetry does. Um, but we it's so fun to talk to you that we've skipping poems. So um, let's oh. read another poem. And I should say, if anybody has any questions for William Logan, I'm watching on cha- on uh, the chat windows on YouTube and Facebook. So I'll pass along any questions. I see one from Josh Williams and Nate Jacob here. I'll pass those on after. But let's hear a. Let's hear a poem.
2: All right, let me see. Uh, oh, Actually, let's do two because
0: they're kind of short and I want to get All to right. enough because your poems right. are great too. We don't want to just talk about uh, you know, criticism in chat.
2: Uh, this, is, this is from an, a new manuscript called Paris Sutra. Paris in the 70s, Houseman's mansard roof smeared with grime, cobbles upended from Europe's days of rage. We gazed at the underbelly of the Arc de Triomphe, monument as half digested, Revolutions. At Le Doumajot, pardon my French, it's probably off, it always is. Uh, We ordered everything but Molotovs, not sure where to leave the tip. We got the past wrong, treading in its boot prints. You stood naked at the window of that Down at Heels hotel, light streaming through your spread legs. And uh, here's a Florida poem. I didn't write about Florida for a long time. I didn't write about my childhood for a long time. Uh, It's become more interesting to me, the childhood, the further away I get from it. And Florida got more interesting when we would go to England for the summer and I'd think, what do I want to write about? I'll write about Florida. (laughs) I have the distance now. This is called Florida Two-Step. The silence was unbearable, that of rotting wood, minor crawling things. What is the end of days but the end of conversation? The sky is lowered. Leaden clouds under high bare wisps of chalk or long winded haze. White noise laundered the horizon. The morning wilted downward. That year in Venice, I mean those two brief days, the canals overwhelmed themselves, spewing sewage at our feet, the waters green with envy or just the green of money. You had words then, when words were another kind of hammer. So did I say, did you say two or did I read two? You read two. That was good. All right, good. Florida 2 steps. We're done. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What's Josh's question? Um,
0: Let's see. Well, I got to go through the questions uh, and see what. Let's see. So Josh Williams says, what I admire about William Logan's criticism is that he breaks down why he feels poems in a collection do or don't work. Does William believe that a piece of criticism should teach as much as it evaluates poetry?
2: Well, that, that's, hard. that's a that's a hard question because really the evaluation is teaching of a certain sort. I, mean, I, I learned a lot from poets who wrote criticism but also wrote longer evaluations. I mean, I think Jarrell was terrific at that, and I don't agree with all that Jarrell said, but he's pretty spot on for the poets of his generation. He didn't praise a lot of people who did not have wonderful reputations later. He had a sense of what was good and bad, as Berryman did. I've just finished reading uh, Berryman's letters, which came out about a year and a half ago, and He saw very early, maybe in his 40s, who the people were of his generation you had to worry about. Lowell, he never compared himself to Lowell. He said, Lowell, he's the best. But Jarrell, Retke, Bishop, he saw the good ones. Uh, That's hard to do, to have that kind of taste. Pound had it mostly, but he also liked some pretty terrible poets. So in in answer to the question, uh, I think that my rules for reviewing are, I have to have two or three quotes unless one will do and they have to be of significant size They're not just clips of a line or two so they have to be two or 3 inset quotes and I think that those at least when others do it in their reviews those tell me a lot about the book that the writer either is saying and I agree with it or is not saying and I disagree with it but I can I get something from having those quotes and you, you don't usually choose the worst quotes. Maybe you'll choose, if if a book is not very good, you'll choose a couple of bad quotes. I think with Gorman, I probably had a couple. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Gorman has $17 million in contracts and I've got zero. So, <laughs> so who am I? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's another question, uh, you know, because it was coming up where we were talking about criticism. Um, um, does a poetry, he's asking about, this is Nate Jacobs. He's asking about... Um, um, does a poetry critic have a favorite current poet, and is that the same as who you would consider the best poet? like Is there a difference between the best and your favorite and and do you have any guilty pleasure type <laughs> poets that you that you uh, don 't think are great but, uh, but appreciate anyway
2: well it's tough. It's like it's, it 's tough it 's it's an, in a way it 's like being asked what 's your favorite poet or what 's mm-hmm. your favorite poem or what 's your favorite book really most most writers don 't have a favorite uh, it 's not like parents who do have favorites though we 're supposed to pretend that they don 't. Uh, I would say, among people of my generation, aside from my sweetheart, whose poetry I adore, uh, Henri Cole, I think is wonderful. But I wouldn't go to the first three books, which I think were, were a little uh, overmannered. Uh, the later books, I think, have been wonderful, treat being gay, being morose, being just being in a wonderful way. And I'm surprised he hasn't won a huge number of prizes for that. It just shows that my taste is not the taste of judges. I loved Gertrude Schnakenberg's first three books, and I haven't liked the two since then. And I don't know what was lost, but something that she had in those first three books that for me was magical, uh, seemed to drop out of the later books. Maybe the way she's right or what she's writing about, uh, she did a long book that was basically a memorial for her dead husband, Robert Nozick, but I just couldn't get on with it. I just didn't like it. I think James Fenton was a terrific poet in the 70s. And then after that, something disappeared. So it's not a matter of having favorite poets. I mean, even Heaney, I love the early books and I like the later books, but I don't love them in the same way. Mm-hmm. I love the writing. The writing is always wonderful, but I don't feel any movement for me. I liked Jeffrey Hill, but not the very late books where I felt lost in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I just, I've never seen a review of them that explained to me exactly what was going on in the last four or five books, which he wrote at speed, and uh, he wrote after he took antidepressants, so I blame the antidepressants in part. But his early books, I think up through Peggy and uh, Canaan and one or two others, he was brilliant.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I think he probably would be my, the, the favorite, my favorite among poets who were writing until recently, that is mm-hmm. you know, you've been dead for a few years now. We were friendly for a time, but uh, it didn't work out, not for, not for reasons of criticism. Uh, but it did let me, once we were no longer friends, write the criticism. And I don't think I could have done so with the dispassion that I had, uh, that I eventually had after that. I, we had very good friendship with him for about two years. And then other things intervened, not not his fault, not ours. Uh, so I, I, I don't try to meet poets, but I do like some of the poets I meet. <laughs> uh, my two colleagues here are very lovely, Angie Malenko and Michael Hoffman. I've known Michael Hoffman since the early 1980s and uh, he's a wonderful poet uh, they're both fine poets and good critics too so it's it's hard to separate the people from the work and once michael became my colleague i couldn't review him anymore because it just was too close mm-hmm. i don't think people should review their friends i don't i think they can review ex-friends <laughs> but not friends it's too it's too dicey you're either going to you're either going to cut your review to suit the friendship mm-hmm. or the other person is going to feel you didn't cut the review to suit the friendship, so you you lose. You here. just
0: can't win. Yeah, it's like loaning money to people or something, right?
2: Yeah, never do that. <laughs> yeah. I had a student. I bailed out of trouble when he got to graduate school. Yeah, he was going to pay me, and I I'm still waiting thirty years <laughs> left for that money.
0: Uh huh. Um. Let's see. So so back to the talk about relatable. Um, Jackie McManus says, if relatable is not the word for poetry, what is? You always hear to make your poetry move from the personal to the universal. So what mm-hmm. would you say is the one word? If it's not relatable, what should poetry
2: be? Oh, gosh, well, that's a tough question. I think I just failed that exam. Um, I think it should be... I'd rather say why why it shouldn't be relatable than what the the proper word would be. Uh, Interesting, good, riveting. uh, But relatable seems to suggest that you should get a certain warm, cozy feeling from it, that you should feel that your interests are being spoken to. And okay, that that might be a fine word for a few poets. I mean, I think Larkin is somebody who does speak universally to various things that are experienced pretty much by everybody. and as soon as people realized what kind of a bastard he could be in his letters, he w- he became the least favorite British poet for a while, uh-huh. <laughs> simply because he was no longer relatable. <laughs> Frost. Frost was a much warmer character on the page than Eliot or Stevens or Pound. These were guys who either liked monologues like Pound or were cold like Stevens or like Eliot who were, who were detached. Uh, but... Uh, the personality that comes across was not Frost at all. Frost was a pretty much a bastard too. Every, there are huge numbers of anecdotes about Frost being mean to people. Uh, so if the poetry can, can get us to relate to other people, I suppose that's okay, but that's not what I look for. Mm-hmm. I couldn't relate to Milton in any possible way. I think he's a brilliant poet. I can't relate to Shakespeare. There's nothing about his private experience that comes through that we can be certain of. Mm-hmm. The same thing with Pope, Chaucer, all those great poets, I don't I don't feel I relate to them at all. I relate to their use of words. And I think that the, what it comes down to, what I'm looking for in poetry is a use of words that makes me sit up and think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to be overly difficult. It doesn't have to be even, uh, the vocabulary doesn't have to be very large. Williams wrote some wonderful small poems in five minutes. Uh, and Frank O'Hara has five or six terrific poems but they're not all terrific. And so when somebody says, yes, I'm a big O'Hara fan. Well, I say, well, I like, you know, the five or six best ones, but all of it, no, not for anybody, not even Shakespeare.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's what, that's what I would say too, is that poetry should be something that that makes you think and expand your consciousness in some way i mean not to be you know metaphysical and mystical or something but it really expands your view of the world is what what good poetry does through language and through you know the, the, the ba the basic unit is the metaphor but you know it, it makes you see something in a different way that you understand it better yeah. and that's what poetry should do i think and so relating Jingle to something drugs. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> But but relating to something, is something you already know, and maybe, I don't know. So if, if it's something that's you can relate to, at least it has to add nuance or, and make it more complicated, like complexify what you think you know, maybe.
2: I can't count the number of times that I've read a poem, because it would probably be none, where I felt that my experience, my knowledge was reflected for some way. Nor do people feel that pretty much in great novels. I don't know why they're supposed to feel it in, in good poetry. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make enough sense to me to to worry about it, because if that's what people feel, I'm not going to say they shouldn't feel that.
0: Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem, and then a little more talk, and then one more poem. So that's, that'll be the rest of the,
2: All right. the segment. Uh, let's see. What do we got here? <clears throat> uh, this is a newish one, uh, also in that manuscript, A Little Affair of the Heart is the title. The clouds had been pinned to the dark morning, a gray version of meringue, neither here nor there, nor nowhere. Like monks praying for rain all night, the toads in the alley kept up their uproar. It was high summer, the age of steam, royal baby weather, mugs with the mug of some royal great-grandson pasted on, as close as we would get to Nero or Caligula. The bookies took bets on what the royal squalor would be called, flat-bottomed, coasting along, the clouds mistook the miserable pink for dawn." This would be one of those royal great-grandsons that Queen Elizabeth uh, has suffered. Uh, the toads there's, there's a toad called a midwife toad. And in the place that we have in Cambridge, a small terrace house, there's an alley behind it and somebody has some water. And I think they introduced midwife toads. So these things squeak and clamor through the summer. It's lovely. It's a lovely sound. So that's, that's where the, the clamoring toads come in. Everything else is pretty much uh it's pretty much Cambridge English stuff.
0: So one of the things that stands out in your poetry um, and your reviews too, or, or your use of metaphor Um can you talk a little bit about about where those come from? We have a, a metaphor <laughs> award, the Neil Postman Award for metaphor, and um, and when we started doing that, it really highlighted how hard it is to find even poems that mm-hmm. use really fresh metaphors. Like you would think, like in your imagination, it's like oh, poetry uses metaphors all the time, and I don't at least contemporary poetry has more of a emotional mood to it and isn't seeking metaphor mm-hmm. it seems as much as maybe it used to. Um, and so, so poems that really rely on metaphor are actually kind of rare, and and so, so how are poems? Can you talk about this? How they're generated? If you if there's any way you can talk about that, like uh, how do you come up with it? Just pops out of your head, or and, and what is the much. importance
2: of it too? Uh, well, I think it's important because it's another way of conveying information,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it's always aside from expectation, which is why bad metaphors or or trite metaphors are so disappointing. They're they're not comparing something to anything that is both uh, consequent and applicable. Now, in the in the seventies, there were these uh, there were these uh, rather early eighties. There were these wonderful poets called the Martian School, which pretty much was Craig Rain and one other guy, Christopher Reed, and they were using metaphors that were so strange and estranged that they had their own comic valor about them. Uh, the, the The poem that that sparked this was one of Craig's uh a martian a martian sends a postcard home mm-hmm. and uh uh i can't think of one of the metaphors offhand but at some point the person in the poem is, is tickling a device with her finger or his finger It's a telephone an old dial telephone but it doesn't say that you're supposed to see the spark that makes the you know, that closes the gap i've had students i've had students who are wonderful at metaphors and it seemed natural seemed to come to them very easily And others who just couldn't write metaphors very easily at all i think some of it is practice and some of it is concentrating on it because i don't think i was good at metaphors at first Hmm. i think maybe if i'm better now it's because i did think a little bit about it but where they come from i've got no bloody idea i'll be writing i'll be writing a a piece of prose and then i'll have to compare something and suddenly this metaphor will come and if it's not good some another one will come Mm -hmm. it's stupid but uh, as, a, as a method, it has no, <laughs> no ability to be transposed from person to person. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not thinking a long, hard time on the particular objects. It just, at some point, it happens.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a question that I, I missed. I should have just asked this one. but It's uh, along the same lines, but from Wendy Vidalock. Um, she said, to what do you attribute the dearth of metaphor in modern verse? Um, I blame the beats who mistrusted it, being open to interpretation as it is. Do you think there's anything to that? Like what do you think there's a reason why there, there it's it's less today than it used to be?
2: I don't know. I mean it, it would be a very interesting subject. I'm not sure I'd be capable of writing a decent essay on it, but but I think she's right. So many of the models people are looking at are of, of poets who are not much older than they are. Mm-hmm. And I think American poetry in particular has gone through a fairly flat phase of prosaic poetry, uh, and at least according to what my graduate students seem to like to write, and my undergraduates too, all in the present tense. Mm-hmm. I can't convince them to use the past tense, even though they're telling a story that happened some time ago. They're in the story, and they're mm-hmm. telling you it in the present tense. Uh, if I were an editor, I would just, I would throw that stuff out, not immediately, but I would, I would be tired of it at some point.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, perhaps metaphor is felt to be like simile, more of a decoration than anything else. And it's, that's unfair to similes, good similes are not just decorations that are embedded in the in the poem and in the meaning. But this, is, if so, then all we have to worry about is that this is a temporary matter of taste, and there will be a, a correction at some point. Uh, the correction, of course, could be, be that things get even prose here. <laughs> and I'm not putting a bet on either in either direction, because certainly you can write too much in metaphor, mm-hmm. make it make it your special code. Uh, Which I don't. I don't. I. I am a great disliker of Hart Crane. For example, I don't think. I think he knew what he was doing. I think he could explain it to you, but I don't think anybody would get to what Hart Crane was meaning just because you read it on the page. That letter he wrote to Harriet Monroe is wonderful, but he didn't write it for every poem or every group of lines. And so we're all in. I'm in mystification. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Let's see. I'm seeing. I thought I saw another question. Let me find it a lot of a uh, lot of chat streaming by um so um uh, kashiana singh asks um uh, what is the role of place in your poetry you talked about florida and cambridge already um is that something that um do th- you th- th- think about a lot now
2: well it's the river cam but it's cambridge so to correct your pronunciation oh, okay. <laughs> uh yeah <you know, laughs> <you know, laughs> try to explain these things um Well, not all my poems are cited in place, but it's certainly true that I have written a lot about um, Florida in recent years, uh, England, which devolves mostly to Cambridge. Some more recently about this fishing village we lived in for five years, Westport Point, which was an old whaling town. And I I finally have enough distance on childhood to find it interesting, whereas I didn't for decades. It just didn't. it, It didn't click. So, I, but I don't think of my, myself as predominantly a poet of place. I think the poems are usually set in a place, and I'm not shy about, in some way or another, tipping the hat to whatever place they are. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm a, a poet of of place. Partly because we moved so many times. My dad was an executive in various companies, and then had this failing real estate business for a few years, and then he got sick. And my mom was in the the real estate business with him, but they were, they were in real estate at the wrong time. Uh, But we moved from Boston to Westport, Westport to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh to Long Island. And then Deborah and I have lived in something like six or seven states over the years. Mm -hmm. So if I want to write about places, there are lots of places I could write about. (laughs) Many of them New England, but not only California, uh, Iowa, of course.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Is is there a question behind her question? Is, Is the question she would like to ask, do you have to write about? The place, and I think no, absolutely not. Uh, Frost certainly wrote a lot about that farm he had, but he was a farmer for one year, and he owned the place for ten. Whereon he, whereupon he got the, uh, he got the deed. His grandfather died, but that was one of the, one of the conditions. And all those farm poems come out of that experience, but they're not firsthand farming poems by and large. They're just mm-hmm. living in dairy and living in a few other places that had farms and he's, he's borrowing from where he is, but it doesn't make a big deal of it. I like that about Frost and he doesn't have to write about farms.
0: Yeah. It's one of the things that that you hear a lot in creative writing workshops and things is that write what you know, you know, write things that you know about. Um, And, and so maybe the writing about place is something that you can, you always know the place you are, you know, so, so you can always write about that. Maybe that's one of the reasons why it's, it's given a suggestion um, do you think about writing about things you don't know like do you seek and in, in research and and try to sure
2: sure uh, that... there's a there's a long poem in uh in a book called Macbeth and Venice uh that is essentially a mystery story a, a sort of a quasi thriller in a mild way but i had to do a lot of 19th century research to come up with some of the things that i could write and i borrowed heavily uh for that for that poem uh, that and another poem called Keats in India. I, I did tremendous amounts of research and for the Keats poem because he never did get to India. I, I pretended he had, he'd lived and he had. And I used the um, uh, the journals and letters of a bishop named Bishop Heber, Heber or Heber, I'm not sure which. All of those things are wonderful. I, I like reading outside the realm of poetry. I do a lot of reading, um, which I so it doesn't surprise people, but I'm not a very good reader, I think. <laughs> I have to have a pencil in hand a better reader and I have to mark passages that strike me otherwise I'll forget them by the next day uh, so I would say read, read more that's, that's, the, that's the key that's the secret mm-hmm. you don't have to write about your own time you don't have to write about you you can but there's a lot out there to cover
0: yeah there sure is it's a big world um, Lisa McCabe asks well this will be the last question from, uh, from the audience but Lisa McCabe says the journals that accept formal poetry are few and far between is there any hope and and, then, and I just wonder um, to make that question even more broadly like like, what is the hope for the future of poetry like how do you feel like we're, we're moving
2: um... I have no idea <laughs> I'd you know, have to make something up uh, do I think that formal poetry is, is going to make a grand comeback no I don't uh, it's one of the problems is, is that people who learn to write formal poetry have to learn a lot themselves and we're no longer in a world or a culture that so values hymns, for example, or church going that we we learn as Dickinson did merely by going to church for years before she pretty much stopped. Uh, she was not a great believer, but she did, she did believe, but she was not a great believer if I can make that distinction. And if you don't start with that, as much of the new formalist poetry showed, you often are a little clumsy at it mm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. It can be very difficult to learn to teach yourself. And, and I did have the help of one or two teachers, but they didn't really teach me form. I, I I pretty much did that myself. And it was a long time before I was any good at it if I ever did get any good. So no, I don't think that that's gonna happen. Um, where is it going? Well, the big money bet would be it's gonna be even plainer than it is now. <laughs> that would be, that's always a near surety, uh, certainty. But uh, I don't know. I. I... I would I would like to think that poetry will be as various as it is now. Will mm-hmm. continue that way. That uh, I, I don't like I don't like any of the buzzwords, but I, I don't think inclusion is the worst the worst word to use about what poetry has become. Uh, when I went to grad school, there was one woman teaching the two years I was there at Iowa, and there were uh, twenty it was twenty five percent female among the I don't know about fiction. Fiction was probably mostly male or mostly male to a larger degree. But uh, 25%, it would probably be more like 60% now mm-hmm. as as the program of Florida is. Uh, roughly over the last 20 years, it's been 60% women, 40% men. So I'd like seeing that. That's important. And it's important for those people to be represented, not just as students, but as faculty, which is always difficult if you have a small program. You're only going to have two or three or four positions. So you can't exactly... Always find the kind of person you think ideally you would have. You got to go with the poetry. If mm-hmm. the poetry is good, people will be able to learn from those folks.
0: Yeah, well, that's a fascinating. It's one of a few things I never thought of that you brought up here. Is that of poetry? You know, its prevalence in society decreasing as we stop going to church and having those hymns and that access. So we don't train an ear, even just as a listener, not 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 even as a writer, but just to hear verse written in that way. Is not something people do, or is it something they did every Sunday for hundreds of years? Right.
2: Well, as a hard-lined atheist for 50 years i can say that, that people should read the bible because it's so goddamn well written mm-hmm. uh, and uh and they should not shy away from it simply because they don't have enough faith to read you don't need any faith to read the bible mm-hmm. much of it you know the song of solomon was not written for the purpose the bible put it to it was a sex poem yeah well there you are that's a wonderful book i wish i could read the hebrew
0: yeah it was my favorite class was literature of the bible in, in college I, I loved just treating it that way it's an amazing text um, well we're out of time let's do one last poem uh, do you want right. what do you want to close out with
2: uh let's see maybe one of the ones from rift of light again uh we'll do a romantic one i don't do a lot of romantic poems my fault this is called the kiss i'll read the epigraph to this because uh it was by stephen hawking who could be very funny when i hear of schrodinger's cat i reach for my pistol <laughs> <laughs> that's a great quote but but apparently uh, i have to think of the quote uh the quote is often is often retailed as when i think when i hear the word culture i reach for my gun which is not funny mm-hmm. but apparently what goering or Goebbels or whoever said it was When I hear the word culture, I reach for my Browning, Hmm. which is funny. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew that the Nazi could be a reader of Robert Browning? All right, the kiss. Moody, jet-haired, she was a whole philosophy. Just another girl, perhaps, but not to me. When she kissed me roughly on the lips, as if I'd been staggered by two battleships, I lay on the cooling sand, my old life a conjunction. And, or, or, perhaps, or yet, or but. I touched my mouth, bleeding from an invisible cut. And that was all. One kiss by the glaring bay. Sometimes love happens that way. A few nights later, this local goddess turned and said carelessly, in a way that burned, I've never thought of you that way, I guess. She touched me then with a ghost of a caress. Now when we happen to meet, a wall of glass rises on the street. Or in the bar where we've gone for a drink. She grabbing in her purse, the night again like ink. Some know who, are, who they are by what is missing. Perhaps there's a world where we kept kissing, where we were married, had three kids, and did what decency now forbids. Nothing terrible happened. No one was swept away, and our lives continued almost the same way.
0: Excellent. That was uh, The Kiss. Again, this is the Rift Kiss. of Light, the most recent book by William Logan. Um, when is your uh, forthcoming book coming out? Is that sometimes... I don't know yet.
2: Yeah. No, I don't know yet. Probably not for a couple of years.
0: Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah, well, everybody can keep an eye on that and find a uh, find Rift of Light at Penguin. William, thanks so much for being a guest. So it's such a pleasure Thank talking you. to you. One of my favorite episodes so far. It's been so much fun and in, in learning too. So I appreciate it. Yep. Goodbye. We out. Yep. Okay, that was William Logan, and uh, once again, his newest book is right here. This is Rift of Light. You can check that out. Um, you can get it, you know, anywhere fine books are sold, but penguinrandomhouse.com is the link we have on the uh, in the show notes. He's also have of course many books of criticism and essays. Um, I think this is his twelfth or eleventh book, so there are a whole bunch of other books too, in addition to the forthcoming one. Um, which was going to be called is, uh, Marsh Hours, which will be coming out in a few years, he says. So um, So thanks, everybody, for an excellent uh, excellent audience for this episode as well. We're going to go to a quick break, and then we are going to do some open lines. And uh, let me put this stuff up on the screen so you know how it works. So if you haven't yet, email your poems that you'd like to share to com. That's open, M-I-C at com, and that way I can show it on the screen like I was doing for William's Poems. Um, and then call in either over Skype That's Rattle Poetry, all one word, Rattle Poetry Send me a chat message and say Hey, I'd like to read some poems um, You know, maybe two short poems or one Regular sized poem, something like that Um, And then we'll put you on the call list that way If you'd like to call in by phone The number is 818-850-7727 That's 818-850-7727 Just let it ring a few times Then hang up and I will call you back When it is your turn within the hour And uh, I'm going to go a quick break Stand up and stretch Uh, I hope everybody do the same And I will be right back back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, we're going to do some open lines. Now, the prompt for this week was to write a Lennon lyric set in winter. And if you don't know what a Lennon lyric is, you have to go back to last week's episode where we talked to Lester Graves Lennon. He described that. It's the form that he invented uh, as something to kind of outlive him, basically. And the form is, um, is 18, 18 lines or six, three six-line stanzas. Uh, and then the first word and the last word of each line are the same. At the end, you kind of play with the, at the the last line of each stanza, you sort of do it a little slightly off. So uh, you'll see what we mean as we go through some examples. But that was the prompt for this week. I didn't get to do one. I I have one that I'm working on, but with my my New Year's resolution was that I wouldn't rush poems. And then just to make it in the show in time. So I'm going to share that next week. Uh, But this is Megan's poem. Um, The Guest. The Guest. Dark sky as you make dark my doorway, back soon my coldest caller. The coldest day of winter, I can feel the day slip away like snow, feel you slip through my bars, so thorough, how you inspect each room, how can your shadow awaken light, can stone walls survive you, no stone left unturned, not even a crumb left, keep finding, find what you keep, mine... My mantle, my mirror, my mind Track my mess, Hunter Leave tracks along the groaning floors All along, you Black cars, windstorms, you Roses died in summer And you rose up like a terrible sunrise Finish up, drink it all in I'll make us a drink That was Megan's poem, The Guest, this week Another great poem by Megan Always a pleasure to be able to share hers and uh let's see what you have for us. Let's go to uh we mentioned Caitlin Bucksbaum. So let's call up Caitlin first. Hey Caitlin, how you doing today?
5: Pretty good. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. Once the show got rolling and all the problems were fixed, it went really well.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit uh late, so I was okay that it started late, but
0: <laughs> Yeah, that works. Yeah, it just uh you know, and then once we um when we start the show and I'm trying to work on other things, I don't get all the audio. I didn't have the book to show and things like that. Mm. So I wasn't all set up because the first, you know, 15 minutes before the show, I was just trying to get the connection to work. Um, but I'm so glad it did. It was a really cool episode.
5: Yeah. Uh, I, I had not, I was not familiar with, um, him or his work. And I, I read a few poems last night to kind yeah. of prepare myself. And, um, yeah, I really love that interview. Usually I, I like when they read more poems, but I, I didn't even <laughs> notice this time. I was like, wow, it's been like an hour and he's read like four poems, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, that was really really cool. I like that.
0: So what did you want to share? You have a you have a Lennon lyric for us. Autopsy. Yep. Is there anything you want to say about your experience with this form?
5: <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um I've written a couple uh since last week's show. Oh wow. Um and I think I'm gonna write some more. because um, it's a fun form. And I was listening to Megan's poem, of course, when you called and um so I didn't get to the very end, but I think hers was really good. Um for well, for two reasons. I mean, like you say, her poems are always good, but um I think it was Jimmy uh, Pappas I was talking to mentioning about this form and he, I think it was him that was saying, you can tell that somebody does it well when you don't notice that the words are being repeated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like listening to the poem and I'm like, Oh wait, this is a Lennon lyric. And I was like looking wow, good job. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <clears throat> um, the one that I'm sharing today it does not stick to the form perfectly. Um, <clears throat> It, there's there's quite a bit of variation, and I don't know if I like that hmm. or not. Um, I kind of had a concept for this poem, and it went a little bit different direction than I anticipated. So I don't know. It's it's a work in progress.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let's hear it.
5: Okay. <clears throat> I'm gonna get a drink of water. Sorry, my throat's like really dry all yeah, of a no sudden. No
0: problem. No problem. I'm getting your your picture along with the because uh, you have such good bandwidth. I don't know what your internet <clears throat> connection is. You know. Isn't
5: that awesome? People are like, you live in Alaska. Everything must be I, like middle of nowhere. I'm like, well, my internet's great. So
0: <laughs> it really is. Okay. So here you are at a regular size. Okay. <laughs> Go okay. ahead.
5: <clears throat> Autopsy. Resolved to mark your death resolved. I asked to see your unblanketed body. I pled and begged to witness how you bled over me, not convinced it was really over. But when I saw your skin, all bare but for the scars, I found what I was looking for. That heart I fell in love with, that dark and trembling pulse, dark with longing and mistakes. With every breath I drew, I knew every day we spent on fire was real, days spent dreaming and singing, spent believing we'd survive each other. Belief is not the same as faith, though. It is colder. And as I cut you open, cold crept in. I could feel you heal, the crypt awaiting me now, my blood abating. Open the door, the wounds reopened.
0: Yeah, that's great. And a great example. I love the form. You, you know, it you varied a little bit, but the variations are great too. And I just love that that echo feeling that it does, that you sort of have, mm-hmm. it's like rhyme, but it's not as strong as rhyme, you know, because it's... There's the way they're spaced out. I think it's a really fun poem to hear read, especially.
5: Mm-hmm. And I, I got some internal rhyme in there. I noticed Megan did that too. There were a few lines where there are multiple um, sort of repeated sounds. And so, yeah, I love it. It's a great form. And I'm really glad that uh, I watched the show last week. So I knew what it was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you did too. Thanks. Always good to see you. Yep. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. It was Caitlin Buxbaum with Autopsy. And let's see. Let me see if we have any... Um... Far eastern poets we should get to quickly. Uh, Nivy's not here today. Let's see. Okay. Let us go then to, let's try someone that we usually do later. Let's do Mike Bales. Call him Mike. Hey, Mike, how you doing today?
6: Pretty good. Uh, Tired from a late night of karaoke, but carrying on. I got (laughs) revisions for this book back, and i Want to get through that? I've got to keep going. So maybe there's a chance it could get out in April.
0: Excellent. Well, congratulations so. on that book. What's the book called?
6: Um, it's called Second Hope. It's a like three books in one that I mentioned, but you know they're short sections. Mm-hmm. The first part is called Secret Hope, which is a sequel to my fourth book, which is which was, uh, Breakfast with the Good Hope. poem, is a mixed genre story of a son visiting his Alzheimer's dad second hope is kind of a mixed genre piece. The second part is some short stories. Most of the short stories have been published in um, the Rock Review. One was an honorable mention in a contest where you got 24 hours to write something, which is called The Iron Pen. Mm -hmm. One, a friend from India kind of recruited me to write for this one international magazine. It never came out, but I wanted to do something with the story. And the fourth is some poems. I think the theme of it all is kind of like uh, rediscovery after loss, which sometimes is a theme of mine for mm-hmm. writing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what, so, do wanna, what do you want to? What do you want to share today? I emailed
6: you two short ones. The first you were asking about these ekphrastic poems that I wrote for the P two project. Oh, that's
7: and right. Mm-hmm. I didn't
6: have I didn't have one on hand at times, but I decided to send you one, which is probably the best of the three poems Uh, they were strange collage photos like where the person would take a picture looking up at a skyscraper in chicago and take one looking down it's almost crazy to try to define what was up and what was down and this is a picture of of yellow leaves falling but between office buildings but there's one green leaf left in a on a tree that's kind of the collage pictures and he changed the he changed the title to fall in the city Deleted the last part i don't know if i like the last part or not it's called fall in the city a weekday in chicago okay go ahead yellow leaves fall in the midst of towers as office workers look out windows dream angel wings and talk among themselves a day grown shorter falls in the shadows and the wind sings a song of summer past When the day falls into shadows, scattered trees raise their weary arms. Bodies bare except for one green leaf hanging onto a branch. One green leaf hanging on a branch. It desires to live a little longer, even if just for one more day.
0: Oh, excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. And then you have another short one too, right?
6: Right. It's for your one word per line thing. One word's a little longer. Otherwise, I kind of like to view it as a, Concrete poem in a way a little bit too since it's narrow and kind of tall. Mm-hmm. This poem's called Stemming.
0: Okay, hang on one second. Let me let me get this up. Oh, come on. There we go. Okay, go ahead.
6: Okay, stemming. From sky, a blade of grass descends into root, a plot of dirt and seed, inspiration at the hand of nature.
0: Yeah, another excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mike. I appreciate it.
6: Okay, thanks. All right, I'll catch you next week, maybe. Yep, have a good one. Take care. All right, see ya.
0: It was Mike Bales with Stemming. And you can see how, um, you know, in the the critique of the week, we always talk about how line length, a lot of times, it regulates the pace of a poem. And You can see with these one word lines how much it slows you down. You end up reading it much more slowly than you normally would. Just kind of a, a physics or something. Let's go to, uh, we have a couple, let's see, we have uh, one first-time caller. So I'm going to, I'll call the first-time caller next. It's a four one four zero one number. I forgot to say that if anybody, uh, if you're a first-time caller, there's a delay on the broadcast stream, so there's two kind of rules. You have to turn down or at least mute your, uh, your stream that you're watching it on um, so you don't have two Tims talking to you at the same time because otherwise that's confusing, disorienting. And then the other thing is that you can't read the poem off the screen even though I'm showing it. Because you won't be in the same place as your poem, so have the poem in front of you when I call you, and then just talk to me through the phone. Turn off your stream temporarily while you're uh, you're out on the phone on the on the broadcast. Okay, so let's call up. Um, let's go to. Uh, let's go to Philip Stern, and then we'll go to that first time caller afterward. Hey Philip, how you doing today?
4: Good, thank you. Uh, I just muted you. Okay. Good.
0: <laughs> did you have a good birthday?
4: Yes, I did. Uh, nothing special. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, we don't get out so mm-hmm. because of the COVID. Yeah, but, uh, but it was pleasant. Everything was nice.
0: That's good. And so glad what... to still be here. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, what do
0: you have uh, to share with us today?
4: Okay, I tried this uh, Lennon lyric, which was I found very challenging. Uh-huh. Um it actually didn't come together until yesterday. Um and there's a like a connection it didn't start until yesterday, uh, but came together with the opening of the Olympics. So uh I think you'll see that in the in the poem. Um of course there are references to Hamlet, obvious references. I think I should also explain one other thing one other thing. Uh Mark David Chapman among among other things, raged about John Lennon writing Imagine No Possessions While Living a Lavish Lifestyle. mm -hmm. So that that explains one of the things in the poem. All right. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) All right. Murder Most Foul. Lennon's postcard lyrics about lynchings in the South and John Lennon's assassination in New York City. Mark assassination is an ever-looming presence, and everyone as being a potential murderer, a non-human being, a god. What a piece of work is man, how like a god, thinking he's omnipotent and can kill another with a planned or unthinking. Just like that, it can be a party with children watching, Or just like that, a single angry man delivering justice for an unliked, lavish lifestyle, each murderer ironically slavish to feelings of inadequacy, to white fear of blackness, or fear of hope, cynical about any beautiful white imagined clouds and the Olympic ideals of imagine. How noble in reason does not apply. Deranged is more how one must describe such non-angelic action. One more church or mosque or synagogue shut up, one more execution, one more unarmed black man, one more Asian, Muslim, or Jew, or one more armed teen gang member defending territory or barely out-of-teen soldier sent to kill in foreign territory. Returning with limbs absent.
0: That was an excellent poem. Thanks so much for that, Phil. Again, and again, you can see uh just that form works so great. I love this form because that, that repetition, yeah. it was like in the back of your head, like this little echo, and it just works works wonderfully. Yeah, I love it too. Although it's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That that is true as well. I and mean, that's why I didn't finish my poem in time, because I you know, you, you get like halfway through and then you're like, Man, this is this is going slow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, take care. Have a good one, Philip.
4: All right. Thanks. Bye. You too.
0: Bye. That's Philip Stern with Murder Most Foul. And let's try this first time caller. This is a or 401 number. And I wonder if uh this could be Audrey Friedman. Let's see. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. Who am I talking to?
8: Tim, this is a pleasure. It's Audrey Friedman. Ah, great. I think
0: I hear myself in the background, though. Do you want to mute that or walk away?
8: Yes, I will walk away for okay. sure. Okay. Okay, is that better?
0: That is, yeah. So I'm not sure because I have the good headphones. Maybe other, everybody else can't hear it, but that's okay either uh, way. So so what, um, what, did you want to share? what did you want to share?
8: Okay. Um, being that it was Holocaust Remembrance Week and... We saw all the news about misstatements and misunderstandings about the Holocaust. I wrote these two um, just to make sure that the story continues. Mm. So the first the first one I'm going to read is a pantoum. Um, it's kind of a hybrid between a cento and a pantoum. I lifted lines from Elie Wiesel's Night, which I taught for many years in middle school and used those lines to construct a pantoum. I remember this. You
0: you submitted this for uh, Poets Respond, right? Yeah, this is a good one. So everybody uh, is going to get a treat right here. I'm glad you could share it.
8: Uh, Oh, thank you. Um, So this is Night Pantoum. Remembering to forget flames rising from a tall chimney into the black sky. In the air, the smell of burning flesh. All that was left was a shape that resembled me. Flames rising from a tall chimney into the black sky. Children, bodies turned into wreaths of smoke. All that was left was a shape that resembled me. A face the color of dead leaves. Children, bodies turned into wreaths of smoke. From the depths of the mirror, a corpse stared back at me. A face the color of dead leaves. The soup tasted of corpses. From the depths of the mirror, a corpse stared back at me. Flames in the air, the smell of burning flesh. The soup tasted of corpses forgetting to remember
0: yeah a powerful poem and i've never oh, seen a cento a, a pantoum at the same time before really interesting <laughs> interesting
8: style oh thank you so much um and the second one is the other one that i had sent you my in-laws were both holocaust survivors Although surviving is relative Mm -hmm. because uh, you don't escape it when it's over. It's been snowing on your nursing home in Southern California for some years now. A void exists in winter. Negative space in the lace of the snowflake. You nap often with your eyes open. Zero visibility So many forms of cold. At least no Nazis are issuing kill orders in their guttural tongue. The blooms are petrified in February's ice. No stripes, no tattooed numbers. The armature weakens and the geometry of bonds break. No shoeless prisoners march through blizzards this
0: winter another good Thank poem. You. Yeah, thanks for sharing both. It's great to have you on. Hope you be on again soon, Audrey.
8: You bet. Okay, thanks. I'm glad I know that this is a regular happening. I yep. will come back.
0: Yep, every Thank Sunday. You. Hope to see you next week even. Have a good one.
8: Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tim.
0: Yep, bye. Again, that was Audrey Friedman. And let me put Audrey in our phone book. I forgot to ask Audrey where she was calling from, but, um, but we'll add the context so we know who it is next time. Let's call about let's do Richard Richard Westheimer next.
9: Hey Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tim. It's good to see you and great great to hear i these um Lennon lyric poems have been just great.
0: They are. It's a really good form. And uh i don't know it's like listen to all all everyone's poems out there um uh, everyone like just writing good stuff you know getting better and better every week is really cool to see too i think yeah, so, uh, I
9: was, i've been noticing that yeah yeah folks that we've been reading with for the last during the pandemic like everything keeps stepping up
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's really it's clear it really is so do you have a you have a london lyric you want to share i assume right
9: I have a Lennon lyric, but if I only have time for one, I think I'll do my Freedom Feels Like This uh, Poets Respond. Uh,
0: let, oh. Let's do both. I think we have I think we have time. I'm in no rush today. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a little confused about the time, too, because we started late, so I don't even know where in the show. I, I lost track of um, <laughs> where we actually started. So let's see. So uh, Freedom Feels Like This. So which one do you want to do first? I'll, I'll do that
9: one first. Okay. Um, and just uh, quickly, the... Um, I love it when this happens, when you're writing a poem, I started off with this guy who's refusing a kidney transplant, refusing to get vaccine, um, and thus he won't be able to get a kidney transplant and is going to die. And my first response was sort of like the late night comedians, which is just to mock I'm like, like what the hell? Mm-hmm. But when you start writing about it, you know, and this is the beauty of poetry, yeah. You start, and so this poem went through many revisions. With me slowly becoming more and more sympathetic to him as as the poem unfolded.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's amazing that poetry can do that, and that was you know that that is buried deep inside somewhere, and then it comes out through the process of making a poem too. At the same time,
9: yeah, it's it's great to subvert one's own one's <laughs> own uh, assumptions. Yeah. So um, freedom feels like this. And and this is somewhat persona. Obviously, I didn't deeply research this man, but uh, some of, some of his history is in here. I grew up pretty wild, grubbed around in the woods with my brother Billy and his pal Gary, skipped school and smoked weed behind the Kmart. My grades weren't bad. I just didn't care much for sitting all day. I loved it though when my dad would teach me to fix stuff, like that old Ford F-250 he had back in the day. We'd climb in the engine compartment, stand right by its straight six and could fix it all, gap the points and plugs, got the timing just right. And if we needed to pull the engine, we'd just get a hold of a hoist and a good buddy. For sure, there was nothing that a couple of buddies couldn't get done. Me and mine, we knew how to have fun, even after high school. Each, every week, we'd pull up buckets at Gary's garage, play penny-ante poker, and shoot the shit. I lost more coin than most. But man, those boys could tell stories. And I'd get to talk about Iraq, about having moon dust all up in my shorts, about the M-bed who peed himself the first time he went out, out of the um, green zone with us, about that last patrol when I was blowed up cut to the stumps, then those days alone in rehab, and damn, if I didn't learn to walk on these peg legs, got in shape too. But now I don't see the guys too much. Gary works two jobs, Billy's got a new girl, and she's put some crazy ideas into his head. We argue like hell and it's no fun. He's he's all, trust the science and follow the rules. But I don't like being told what to do, like some expert knows what's good for me, especially after what I've been through. Even so, when that virus came over from China and all those government folks told us how to keep the thing from killing us all, I did my part. I locked down, stayed home from work, took unemployment. Boy, did that hurt. Wore a mask when I went to the store. I was okay with it for a bit, But now this, a shot? You're telling me I gotta get vaxxed, and if I don't, you'll treat me like I'm not a good man? I fought for this country, and you won't let me go to work? And now it's worse. I need a kidney bad. And they're telling me without the jab, I'm not gonna get one. They said you'll die if you don't get it. And I said, I am willing to die. I'm not gonna just fall in line, not gonna do it. No, sir, I was born free. I will die free. I am not changing my mind. Yeah.
0: That's a, a powerful poem and a, and a powerful story. I mean, it goes from, like you said, from being, um, just feel like a sad story. Like, like just, you know, save yourself, man. And, and but to, to that, that whole idea of I will die free is such a powerful line, which I saw in the quote. Cause I read the article. Um that's one of the things that's an actual quote for me. That's what he said. And, yeah. um, yeah, it's a powerful thing to think about from a, from that perspective. So so thanks for sharing that and highlighting that story.
9: Yeah. Richard. yeah it was uh, the the italicized words were his exact words. Yeah. And after listening to him over and over, you get the sense this guy's not crazy.
0: Mm-hmm.
9: He's 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 taking control. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's choosing how he wants to live and and what risks he wants to take
9: and yeah. Yeah. Um so um uh, uh, my winter um, Lennon lyric, mm-hmm. which uh, was great fun. Uh, in preparing for the winter storm, um, which, as you know, we had ice storms and power outages, and and it was it, it's it's been gorgeous and a little treacherous out here in the Midwest for the last week. So.
0: Oh yeah did did you get any like did trees fall and all that in your area? I,
9: yeah, uh, yeah we had we had downed uh, power lines not not in our place but. Um, um yeah and it's and as you'll see in the poem which is 90 percent from this past ice storm but an amalgamation of other ice storms uh traffic came to a standstill the roads around here were completely closed for a couple days
0: yeah we had one when i was a kid so, i was 13 i think and and uh You know, so many trees came down that there was no power for like uh, 10 days or so. And I mean, everybody was camped out with, you know, one neighbor had a generator. You kind of go over there and you had to get a chainsaw just to get through across the street. It was those things can be scary.
9: Yeah. And this one wasn't quite that, but it had it had its it had its charms Mm -hmm. uh, for us anyway. So uh, this is uh, in preparing for the winter storm. And its I, I don't know exactly how to format this when you have a poem where the title is part of the poem. I guess it's called a titular. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this is how yeah, I do it. Yeah, we just do that. Normally we just read into it that way. In preparing for the winter storm, we had the good sense to charge our phones, but we failed to pop the wipers on the cars, failed to move the cars from under the maple, to move a load of firewood from the shed to the house, a blundering we'd forget we'd regret long after the power went down, us blundering round the house trying to find the flashlights we left around, in here, somewhere. After the lights went out, we settled in like we've done before, snuggled under the covers, glad we like each other, and made plans for the morning. We each took on tasks. I brought in wood, Deb built the fire. I took a shovel to the drive and she got the skis prepared for a day of exploring. All the roads were closed, would be for days, so we were on our own. Once out on the ski trails, we saw so many trees down. The oaks suffered most, many with their clinging leaves sheathed and weighed to the breaking point with coats of ice. After a mile, we heated up, shed our coats, we're quiet long enough to hear nothing but a solitary sparrow. We were stunned at how much we'd won in that moment. So still, so stunning.
0: Mm. Yeah, great poem. Excellent line in the It calls to mind the, uh, you know, the Wallace Stevens. One must have a mind of winter you know, to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Richard.
9: Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. But-
0: it was uh, Richard Westheimer with In Preparing for the Winter Storm and Freedom Freedom Feels Like This, a pair of poems this week. And let's go to, who do we have left? Let's go to, let's see, I want to make sure. Oh, Bev Wendell enderstone sorry, Bev. Almost missed you. Hey, Bev, how are you doing today?
7: Great, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. So what do you have that, was- that you would like to share?
7: Yeah, so I did a Winter Lennon lyric. <clears throat> Excellent. And by the way, I loved—I absolutely loved today's program. That was—that was fabulous.
0: Yeah, he—you okay, never know so how, just, how people are going to be, um, you know, in person. He was fun in person. That was a lot of fun.
7: It was a lot of fun, and and <clears throat> I always feel it's like taking a course Sunday mornings that we we learn so much about poetry.
4: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, That's my
7: and <laughs> just like the last caller, just like Richard. Um, we're in the Midwest where we have the severe cold,
4: mm-hmm.
7: and the, um, the wild animals uh, starve, uh, starve during the severe cold because the snow comes in and, and uh, covers their food supply. So my poem is about that, okay, yeah. and I entitled it in the same format as the Lennon lyric. I didn't know exactly how you wanted that done.
0: Yeah, I wasn't so gonna, I was going to check it, with that. I was wondering about that myself. But it, but Lester I actually look it up, but he doesn't do that. So uh, so it's an extra added element even on top of the line and lyric to make the title do the same thing.
7: Yeah, so <laughs> so my title's in the same format. Waiting mule deer patiently waiting. Deer wait for their veggie scraps, deer hiding in our shrubs, hiding hoping to ambush us, hoping that we remember daily that they are starving in winter. They depend on us being dependable. We cohabitate with them. We live on their grazing rights to live near nature while they are in nature, natural at eking out a sparse natural living on anything green, living through winter, all that frozen night throughout. Daily Bellies grow rounder daily. Does vie for grass beneath the snow. Does will soon chase away their yearlings, and will need to prepare to nurse to be needed. Spring arrives when the green springs forth with spotted fawns forthwith.
0: Excellent! I I do. I love this form. I'm so glad that uh, Lester Lester invented it because it is a really fun one. All these poems are wonderful. Thanks, Beth, for sharing yours.
7: Thank you so much. Yep. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. It was Bev Wendell Atherstone with waiting mule deer, patiently waiting. I love that that repetition in the title too. And Guy Chambers, I didn't miss you. Sorry, Guy. Oh, and Jerry Stephenson. So I didn't scroll down far enough. So we have Jerry Stephenson. Um, we have Guy Chambers. Yeah. Let's call up. Uh, let's call up. Uh, Jerry Stephenson first, then we'll do Guy Chambers. Hi, Tim. Hey, Jerry. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Do you want to push that camera button so we can see you, too?
10: I'm trying to. Oh, hang on. I'm still a newbie on this stuff. Where's the camera button?
0: <laughs> it's like between the, it's up toward the bottom, by the hang up and the uh, the red hang up and the white mute. There you come. i there. I'm you there? You go. Whoa. Yeah, there you are. Hello. <laughs>
10: good to see
0: you. <laughs> yeah, good to see you again. so much fun. You stayed warm up there.
10: Uh, We're in the Gulf Islands. don't tell the rest of the Canadians. It's plus nine this morning. Okay. (laughs) The dog and I were up early for a walk just in a light fleece. Oh, very nice. By the water. Beautiful, yeah. Like I said, I think I told you this before, I have... I have a 12-foot palm tree in my backyard. Oh, <laughs> Don't tell the people back <laughs> in Manitoba.
0: Uh, yeah, that, if I could pick one place in the world to live, it might be where you are. So It's um, pretty
10: cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for cool. sure. I, I always call myself the fortunate one for that reason.
0: <laughs> and I also call myself the challenged
10: one. <laughs> Just when I'm getting a little comfy with the prompts and that, you come along with a linen lyric. <laughs> it's a tough one. But when you it was a twister. It is. And then yeah. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the lightning bolt came from the sky, and I rewrote it, and I changed the verses around. And I think it
0: works. Interesting. So is this silver tip? No, that's the next one.
10: That was was an old, that's an old friend story. This is called leaning into the punch.
0: Excellent. That was
10: the the plus one I sent.
0: I have this. Yeah, go ahead. I have it. I have this one.
10: Leaning into the punch. Go ahead. You're a winter guy. You know about that. Leaning into the punch. Just don't add to chaos. Just trust instinct. Knowledge without trust can on occasion be a can full of worms, even if mindful. This does not sorting that from this. Hit or miss. Throwing first thrown usually the best hit. Sorry. If you're only out to win, if not, learning is your path, not a string of threads leading only to balls of string. Travel into quagmire. Unmapped travel. Stop signs are green. Still require a stop. Cannot go. Sorry, go cannot happen if you can't stop. Can't go. Ice beneath your tires, still ice. You can't go. The skid brought the skid brought was by you. The force, the you in you, into the ditch with force multiplied by instinct, not knowledge multiplied. Now this open container of casitas, these slithering, slipping snow worms. Do the iterates, idiots blithering.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Leading you to the punch. And that was going to be, uh, you'll see next week. My, my poem is a similar, similar topic, Skid <laughs> on okay. <of> that Ice. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, you want me to do Silver Tip, too? Yeah, why don't you do that, too? Let me uh, pull it oh, up. Yep, okay. go ahead. I have it, too. And so All what's right. this? What's the... This uh, I
10: used to live in the Rocky Mountains, if you, uh, just above Montana,
0: mm-hmm.
10: next to Waterton National Park and Glacier National Park. Mm-hmm. Beautiful scenery in all four directions, and the mountains block the view in all four directions to prairie people. <laughs> it's terrible. But we had a resident grizzly bear there. Oh, yeah. He was there, a boy's big guy. Never a problem. He was the man, okay? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about him a couple of years back here, and I wrote this poem, and then I looked at the top drawer and see it again. So I rewrote it. Now I rewrote it. I rewrote it, so I've got to get it off my chest.
0: Excellent. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay,
10: silver tip. I know his home range. We have been gripped by his spring carrion stench. On a rare, busy, berry day, surprised by youths, humans in an open jeep, exploded up the mountain. All have heard how fast a grizzly can scamper. Up a vertical, they are even faster. Or slow snow slide down an avalanche chute, a bound of sheer joy. He hardly roamed. Females gifted him. Younger males avoided him, and would do for years. Over my workbench, bound to a leather lariat, is a tuft of his coat. He unknowingly left me. My last surviving mountain dog would fluff up and curl her lip in surprise with it. Careful, never very close encounters. The quiet ghost of our valley, knowledge of his presence silently still abounds.
0: Yeah, excellent. That, that is one thing. I'm so glad we don't have grizzlies here. We just have black bears. <laughs> if well, they, we had they trust it me. would be a different a different lifestyle, I think, if we had grizzly bears instead of just black bears. Because
10: I'd walk around and I always took a bunch of dogs with me or friends or what's because you could not walk away from our village with because there's grizzly bears.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't go for a hike without a gun, and I. <laughs> it doesn't work sprays yeah. better really
10: I could, stories I can't tell <laughs>
0: <laughs> but right. anyways thanks Jerry always always good to talk to you and, uh, and see you now too I appreciate it
10: okay thank you so much yeah. good see you great show today wow more yeah. stuff to learn it never stops
0: excellent That's thanks great. a lot yeah hope so yeah take yeah. care Jerry
10: take care bye bye
0: Jerry Stephenson with Silver Tip and uh, a Latin Lyric and let's call up Guy Chambers and then I have some other poems too to share as well We have uh, some people email me poems. I have some news poems I'm going to share, so stick stick around for for that as well. Hey, guy, how you doing today?
3: At the to bat, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great. So, what do you have you wanted to share?
3: Yeah, I got. Well, I wrote uh, one of those winter linen lyrics there and all that too. And uh, it's funny listening to your show here, everybody's talking about down there, you're getting all the snow and all that, and up here we're getting not much rain. I think we got more rain this uh, winter than it is in the. Uh, and then the summertime, Oh really wow! it's weird. Huh. And we don't want rain in the middle of wintertime. I it think it's pretty icy. Yeah, yeah. I that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay, so this is my poem there called Winter Friends. Had fun with it. This is something different. I've never written one of these before. And so it's called Winter Friends. Old two friends stop by. Today, that's forever old. Doubt, always without that doubt always meeting me at this time of the year, always. Cold as they are, so bitter cold. Nibbling Jack Frost on my ears, nibbling. Old Man Winter, stepping on my toes that are old, old. Yes, we're back, yes. Glad, why aren't you glad? Doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't. Nobody's going to step in our way. Nobody. Don't have to stay. If you don't, may you just fly away and tell me. This is our show. Besides this, always keeping you on your icy toes. Always. Bored? Yes. When we get bored, we'll head out. For sure we will. Time for a laugh and beach time time oh yes it's beer time
0: <laughs> thank you idea. yeah thanks guy I love that okay. May you just fly away until May too yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah this is the yeah. time of year where we get sick of the winter up here in the mountains yeah, for yeah. sure
3: in that, yeah in time there <laughs> yeah too bad I missed your other show there we had those three uh, one line per uh, one word per line there I had some written but I couldn't make it to the show there because I like writing short poems like that I missed out on that one
0: <laughs> yeah I know you well if you want to share some next time uh, feel free
3: yeah okay then
0: all right, take care, guy.
3: Yeah, you too. Bye, bye. This
0: is guy Chambers with Winter Friends, and now let's see. We have. Um, see if we can get this working. Uh, Carla Schwartz included this. Let me see. Uh, Carla Schwartz included audio. I'm going to see if I can play it, and then if not, I'll. Um, I'll just read the poem. But let's see if we can get the uh, the audio from Carla to play. Okay, so, um, here we go. And the poem uh, by Carla is uh, Oh, to be humble, a Schwartz lyric, a Schwartz lyric from Carla Schwartz. That's fun, too. So I'm going to have to. Let's see.
11: Oh, to be humble, a Schwartz lyric, five lines in the first stanza, eight lines in the second. Were I not so quick to judge, were I. I not so short of temper? Were I more patient, more open-minded? What does it take to open a heart? What does it take to open a mind? Why don't I mind my own business? My first thought worst, not best, first thoughts spill out bullishly. No forethought toward the ears my words fall toward. What screams to the void? What seems unwelcome? Seems to me I must give myself a talking to.
0: Ah, That was great. That was Carla Schwartz with Oh to be Humble, a Schwartz lyric. I love that ending. What screams... To the void what seems unwelcome. Seems to me I should keep must give myself a talking to you. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Uh Carla. Okay, so we are gonna share um this was last week's poem. And we were trying to get um, Sarah Sethia on, but the the time difference makes it difficult and uh we haven't been able to connect. So I'm gonna share this poem. This is for um for TikNot Han, who passed away um last week or a week and a half ago now. This was the February 1st poem, um, Decay. And um, about this, Sarah writes, uh, Sarah writes, uh, These days before Thich Han passed away, I was listening to his conversation with Krista Tippett on her show On Being. During the conversation when he spoke about death and suffering, my mind wandered to the time 12 years ago when I had left a tomato to rot and a week later had stood in the school lab holding the rotten tomato, wondering why the beautiful white fungi over the tomato was called by a word so harsh as rot. That night, the 11-year-old inside me slept peacefully after learning from Thich Han that decay, suffering, and death were intimate manifestations of life itself. So it was Sarah's note, and I was hoping to talk to her because I, I you know, I see a lot of great um, Thich Nhat Hanh quotes, um, especially, you know, after he passed away. And, and before that, though, there, there are things that um, that I've, I've read before that are just wonderful, but I'm, I'm not really that familiar um, in, in any kind of like depth. Or, so I was hoping to talk to Sarah um, about his influence, but let's just hear her poem instead, Decay. And this is a, a personal story that that um, she was thinking about after after he passed away.
12: DK. I don't remember why I left. A half-cut tomato inside a plastic box in the school locker, but when I returned to it a week later, it was melting. Soft, its red disappearing into foamy white silver. Is this how the moon would look from my window when she's dying? Fungi. The teacher held the box on her palm and decided to show us a class of five, neatly lined dahlias, the tomato rot under a microscope. So we pranced to the lab and queued behind the grey microscope's arm, I in the end, without the rush of another body, pressed my eye against the microscopes. The fungi, oh the beautiful love-making fungi, rising from tomato soil, the way sunflowers rise from grandma's rot.
0: And yeah, just a lovely poem there. Um, and then there's, a, there's an epigram um, that Sarah didn't read. Suffering and happiness, they are both organic like a flower and garbage. If the flower is on her way to become a piece of garbage, the garbage can be on her way to becoming a flower. And that is one of the just one, many wonderful quotes by Thich Han, Hanh, um, just changing the way we look about the world. And um, so I appreciate both that poem and, um, and, and Thich Nhat Han. Um, and let's do a preview as well of Tuesday's poem. Ab- Abby E. Murray is the poet again. This is her record 10th appearance on um, the Poet Respond poem. Um, she submits really, really regularly. And she's just a wonderful writer. Um, she's been doing this for, for seven years. She's one of the earliest poems poems we had on as well. And this is a poem about oh, this wonderful story. I'm going to show some pictures here, especially since... um. Since Nivy isn't on with some good photos, I don't know if everybody saw this, um, this wonderful photo series of the polar bears that have taken over a weather station in, um, in Russia, um, in Chukokta. Um and a, and a photographer took these drone photos. And check this out. If you haven't seen these, um, look at these bears. Let me, let me shrink this too a little bit so you can see better. But look at these bears, you know, hanging out. It's amazing photographs um, at this weather station. And and this is probably the best one with the um you know, the two looking out the window and they have this and, and apparently a drone, you know, flew by and um, caught all these wonderful photographs of, of a world where we don't exist, you know, and in the human, you know, uh, nature reclaiming it is just fascinating. And polar bears are always so um, interesting because they, you know, we we're talking about grizzly bears before. They're even scarier than grizzly bears, but, um, but they don't, uh. They don't seem so. They seem so cuddly and adorable. So that's always fascinating about um, about polar bears. And this is a poem that uh, Abby wrote for this. So let me, uh, let me pull this poem up. And this is going to be Tuesday's poem. This is The Right to Joy. The Right to Joy.
13: It happened. I stepped outside on a Tuesday morning and noticing cloudlessness over the city, the hydrangea happiness of all that blue, I began to doubt my delight, suddenly aware of what I turned away from in order to turn toward comfort. I called Leanne, thousands of miles away, just as I suspected. It was raining where she was, the sky dull as pencil lead, the night's oozing past On rivulets of fog. Her last memory of a sunset was two weeks old and she was getting ready to go for a walk anyway. I hung up and refused to enjoy the daylight I hadn't earned. I worked in the basement with the blinds drawn, picking at my keyboard like a starved chicken. My fingers froze. I couldn't feel anything I wrote. At lunch, I surfaced in the kitchen to make a sandwich and checked the windows. The sky was still there, brighter now, emboldened even, a blaze of sun on the windowpane like God peeping in to laugh. Truly, the sky above me was flawless cerulean, not even airplanes signing it in their fine script as they floated up and down the eastern seaboard. I didn't falter. I spent a few more hours in the dark, writing about grayness. Leanne called and asked if I'd read the article about the photographer who found polar bears living in an abandoned weather station on a Russian island in the Chukchi sea, a deserted village of wooden buildings. Some half collapsed, all covered in rot and moss and proof of a climate dictated by storms and ice and harshness. Only the broken windows reveal less emptiness than the photographer or any of us expect. Massive polar bears poke their faces over the splintered sills to blink at the camera, which is attached to a drone so as not to frighten them too much. And I don't speak polar bear, but in these photos they seem to be saying, Hello, this is ours now. And I have to agree, as I imagine the photographer did. Because I don't think anyone can disagree with polar bears, even in pictures. Even the ones who seem pacified and pleased, albeit by chance, with their sudden luck. Which they must know is theirs while they have it, because they have it. But not for always. They are dying along with the rest of us. It isn't fair or unfair. A weather town was built by humans for humans then claimed by bears for the newly fortunate. Since when have accidents been just? Since when does happiness choose its beholder? The polar bears curl up on their new porches like they're waiting for a pie to cool. They let the drone do its thing. They let it leave. I tell Leanne I need to get to the post office before it closes, and when I open my front door, the afternoon is still hanging on still luminous, but goldening, more bronze than blue now, as if wizened, as if to say, I can take it or leave it, this joy, this surprise gift, this nectar of air I didn't grow or pay for, but woke up and found just the same, as if to say it had only one plan for its life, and that was to end, whether I savored it or
0: not. Yeah, just a beautiful poem. That was Abby E. Murray once again, with uh, the right to joy, and um, that's that's the kind of thing that I imagined poetry respond would be. It ended up being a lot more political, very often, um, you know, given the the way the country's gone, and uh, or the world really. Um, but but seven or eight years ago, eight years ago now, when we started, it, I was imagining this these kind of responses to to the news in, in a way to make poetry current, you know, and so seeing these wonderful photographs and then turning that experience um, and making more meaning out of them is really, uh, really wonderfully what poetry should be doing. So, uh, so great stuff there from Abby. That's gonna be Tuesday's poem. So be sure to share that on Tuesday on social media if you would, because that always helps. And, uh, and now that's gonna be the show for today, I believe. I'm looking to make sure I didn't miss anybody, but uh, yeah. So the prompt for next week... Oh, wait, no, the Sheesh, I almost forgot the Psyku. So this is an article I came across this week. This is from Tel Aviv University. And uh, early humans placed the hearth at the optimal location in their cave for maximum benefit and minimal smoke exposure. And so one of the things I'm just always fascinated by is the the amount of... It's a little sliver of history that is history, and how much is actually prehistory compared to it? I mean, we have um, one of the things I always mention is that the, that that FoxP2 gene that regulates um, that, that regulates syntax um, for humans is a hundred thousand years old, which means we had complicated language that required syntax long enough before that to have uh, to have evolved that gene to to regulate syntax and so that was a hundred thousand years ago and even farther before that uh, in this study scientists found what they did is they took a cave they made a 3d model of it and they did these smoke studies to see where the smoke was going to go in the cave and they found that the the placement of the fire in in these caves that they were studying was the ideal place to maximize the size you'd have around the fire while minimizing your smoke inhalation which means the humans were 170,000 years ago. Were, were, we're thinking ahead and planning where the best place to put this would be. Um, and I mean, just the thought of that, about that long ago, that many generations back, um, being, being intelligent enough to do that and, and having brains like we have now where we would think and plan and have an idea that, that we don't want to breathe in this smoke. Um, but we also, one of the things they found is the best place to put it would be against a wall, um, but they still are in the middle because you want to have as much rumor on the fighter to do things as possible, because that was light and heat as well. And so um, just thinking about about humans being human that long ago is always fascinating to me. So I really like that article. And then this was my Psyku, and um, there's a typo in my Psyku. Hang on, so let me fix the typo. Okay. So um, this is my Psyku based on that. Shadows move on the cave wall. This life. Shadows move on the cave wall. This life. That is your psycho for today, and that is your show for today. Next week's prompt on the Rattlecast is going to be this. Write up home about an act of rebellion. Um, so a very simple prompt, a theme-based prompt for it in any style you want, but write up home about an act of rebellion. That is your prompt for this week, and this week's guest, or next week's guest I should say, is going to be Zilka Joseph. Lamzilka was in the Indian Poets issue in the fall. She has a new book in Our Beautiful Bones, um, and that's available now. Um, a wonderful poet and a very interesting life, too. So we'll talk to her on Rattlecast number 131. That is next Sunday, February 13th, the usual time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Um, with a pro- or the prompt, write a poem on an act of rebellion. Hope to see you then, and hope you have a great week in the meantime. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.